0: blog talk radio
1: Good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are on this beautiful spinning globe, this jewel in the sky. Welcome to Richard C. Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight. This is the producer, Kinthea, and I'm co-hosting tonight with Timothy Saunders, who's from the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team and is an amazing yacht designer. And we have the honor of a really special, wonderful guest tonight. The name of our show is Decapitation of the Great Pyramid. And our guest tonight is Dr. Carmen Bolter. So Dr. Carmen is the director, producer, and writer of The Pyramid Code, an epic five-episode documentary series that is aired on national TV in 38 countries and is on Netflix in 17 Reasons. Carmen is a retired professor from the Graduate Division of Educational Research at the University of Calgary. She taught at the Chinenko Technology University in Taiwan for four years. She was the director of the Women's Therapy and Research Center in Calgary, Canada for 10 years. Dr. Carmen has been involved in all aspects of the vision and development of interactive ViewCom, an online learning and social action network. Carmen is the author and groundbreak of the groundbreaking book, Angels and Archetypes, an evolutionary map of feminine consciousness. Dr. Carmen has traveled to 66 different countries to conduct her research, including Egypt where she has been 34 times. She is working on an exciting new documentary series called The New Atlantis, filmed in 14 countries. Dr. Carmen is on the International Advisory Council for the Bosnian Pyramid Project. Been the leading, she's been leading tours to Egypt for 23 years. Welcome, Dr. Carmen. It's such a pleasure to have you with us tonight. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Well, I'm sure that a lot of our audience would like to know what started you off on this journey. Whatever got you interested in the pyramids? Was this something from the time you were a child? I'm so curious.
2: Yes, uh, absolutely. It started when I was a child. I was having past life memories when I was six years old and seeing visions and the the, the costumes, the headdresses and all of that, and then... At the age of six, I went to the library and looked up a costume book and understood that it was Egypt, and that's where it went from there. So you were
1: seeing Mm – oh, Mm -hmm. I apologize. I'm just curious. You were seeing the costumes before you ever had actually seen them with your physical eyes. You were seeing them Mm -hmm. in the dream world.
2: Yeah, well, it was actually a waking waking vision of my cousin, Uh, I was off in the distance at a family gathering outside and Mm -hmm. I kind of had a process with my favorite maple tree and I held my hand up and saw a glow around it and then turned my gaze and saw my cousin standing in full regalia uh, from Egypt and I shook my head and turned away and, and something said to me, let's do that again. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and so there was my hand with the glow and then I turned and I saw it again wow uh, I've got bit, chills all over me yeah I was a little bit shook up and then I heard a voice that said don't tell anybody and then I uh-huh. thought now there's good advice and then I imagined myself telling my mother uh-huh and um, and did you no they told me not to so that's when I Uh-oh. started this long path of knowing I had guides and uh-huh. And then when I was 8 I found a book and uh it was my father had it it was on the bookshelf in the house. And uh, there was a picture of between the paws of the sphinx. And uh and so I just practically climbed through the picture and went how close can you get to it?
1: Oh and my gosh.
2: Who why do you care about that? You know, 8 years old. And I was hooked. And then I was looking up
1: um, how to get to Egypt. And by the mm-hmm. time I was
2: twelve, I was planning my first trip.
1: Did you make costumes? Because I used to love to dress up in costumes when I was young. Yeah, I made all kinds you...
2: costumes. I, I was uh-huh. sewing by the time I was six. My mother must have uh-huh. really been concerned about how precocious I was, because uh-huh. I wanted clothes for my Barbie doll, and she wouldn't make, she wouldn't buy them for me. So finally, she gave me uh, a basket of fabric and scissors. And I started making them by hand,
1: uh-huh. a,
2: pat- a Barbie doll pattern. And then I started making oh, clothes my for myself when I was eight. I mean, I had a lot going on when I was a little girl.
1: Right. Were, were you making Egyptian costumes?
2: No, but I started making harem outfits for high oh. school for a play.
1: No, mm-hmm.
2: so I wasn't necessarily making. It might be pretty tough to make because of all the jewelry and whatnot.
1: And right, dresses. right. So when you were having this past life recall, were you remembering, like, what your status was, who you were in this past life, or you're remembering generically the the environment? And like,
2: well, it was generic at first. You You've got to keep remembering I was six years old.
1: Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
2: but it hooked me, and then I did. I mean, I think we're, you're heading towards this this answer that I actually ended up doing quite a lot of past life regression.
3: Mm-hmm. And then I,
2: I I trained in hypnosis, mm-hmm. and so it was a combination between going to readings. Over you know, I had my first past life reading when I, in 1973 or something like that, way back. Uh-huh. So then I started to train myself to remember things, and uh, and then I, I I I had a full reading that explained. Um, why I was so hooked on Egypt
4: and, and, and the the other lives
2: that I had had there. So it's been a long process of piecing that together. By the time I was 33, I had evidence of 85 of my own past lives.
1: Oh my gosh. That's incredible.
2: No, no, it is incredible. And, and that's why I've been chasing all over the planet. Looking uh-huh. here and there and seeing how I feel and using mm-hmm. my you know my cellular memory um, to try mm-hmm. to structure and piece all this together. So it's come to make a lot of sense to me now.
1: How did you weave the science with this these past lives? I mean, I mean because your research is definitely taken you down a. Um, in a certain way, it's kind of linear, and in another way, it's not linear. I'm so curious this weaving of the two paths.
2: Well, academia is academics and, you know, we have to wear that hat and the mm-hmm. real juice is in the past lives. And, um, well, my master's research, uh, I was taking, uh, psychology as my background.
3: Okay. And,
5: uh,
2: I, I took a, a humanistic psychology course and, uh, mm-hmm. and we, we were to do some kind of study within the class. And so, and it was a, it was a full year project. So um, the topic I had was, can you teach people to see auras?
1: Oh, how fun.
2: And this is way back in 76. I'm dating myself. And so I did a lot of research on, you know, what makes somebody, you know, able to see it. And they said, if it was low light, so mm-hmm. candlelight, and if it was a white background and all these different things. And so, I asked everybody if in the class at the beginning if anybody had seen Anora, and nobody had. And then I set the conditions up with, you know, quiet music and all that. And I told, there was a thing, diffuse awareness rather than focused attention, so you kind of don't keep your eyes too focused. Uh huh. instructed them to look in the area around this person, and to just, they all had a clipboard with a note, with notes to say what they saw. And by the end of it, 70% of them had seen the aura. Now, I work... Mike on, and... Pardon me? I said,
1: I, I'm just curious, like they were like, you know, comparing notes and they had seen the same aura? They were
2: able to see the glow because I showed mm-hmm. them how, instead of looking at it, if you can right. draw it off, you know, it's the same thing as those stereograms,
3: mm-hmm. where if
2: you try too hard, you can't do it. But if you relax, you can mm. see into the 3D. And right, it's a, right. it's a trick of perception, but mm-hmm. it's also real, but you're using the other side of your brain. Mm-hmm. And so, so then I went on, because um, I was trying to learn how to see auras too. And somebody said, go into a, a bathroom that doesn't have a window and bring a candle and look at yourself in the mirror, but not yourself around you.
0: Uh-huh. And
2: I tried and tried and tried, like for four months every day. And one day I relaxed enough to see it, and I went, "Oh, that I've seen that before." Yeah, uh, then you recognize that you've seen it before. But there's mm-hmm. the trick, because mm-hmm. the, and, and this is the answer to your question: How do you move between the concrete reality of 3D and what they tell us, and and the other uh, symbolic, you know? perception on another level kind of thing Mm -hmm. so it's it's definitely using the other side of the brain so then I went on in my master's to look at the conditions that would allow us to change our internal image and what made people more hypnotizable and you know what 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 personality characteristics or whatever you know would allow people to change their internal image and it turned out that I could see from the pretest and the um post-test that there had been something that went on, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And it turned out there was no particular, I was measuring introversion, extroversion, uh, visual versus auditory or kinesthetic uh, abilities, uh, multiple intelligences. And it turned out that the the real answer was it was practice that made people able to change their internal image, which turned out to be really valuable. Valuable information that you you know you, you don't get somebody who's better at it at the beginning. It's, you start anywhere and mm-hmm. train yourself to move forward, which turned out to be really brilliant, really useful uh, information in terms of a master's thesis.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and is some of that information that you learned is that in your book, The uh, Angels and Archetypes? Yeah, by any certainly, chance? Certainly,
2: certainly. Uh, but that's that's more encyclopedic in terms of. 22 goddesses and their higher selves are angels. And it's mm-hmm. a full teaching. That's 10 years of research in that
1: book. So, mm. Well, I'm wondering, how did you transition from the study of psychology to going around the planet to these sacred sites and trying to figure out how the pyramids worked? I mean, with, well,
2: it's, it's, I, I wanted, well, first of all, I didn't have a very happy childhood and mm-hmm. I just wanted to leave. I packed a little suitcase for myself when I was four. Oh. I didn't quite know where I was going, so I sat on the front steps. And uh, <laughs> anyway, so I was planning on leaving for a good long time. And mm-hmm. my father kept saying, "Well, we'll get a degree first, and then you can go traveling." So mm-hmm. my whole life was all geared up to just get out of there and go travel, and just within me. Mm-hmm. And so I actually ended up in Egypt mm-hmm. in '77. And that was my number one place that I felt compelled to go. Uh, I went to several countries before I got there. Um, and w- actually, when I went into the National Museum in Greece, uh, there was a na- there was a real Egyptian artifact, big one, in there, and mm-hmm. it didn't have a glass cover on it. It was just a real statue of two mm-hmm. people. And I went in there and. Here I was face to face with something authentically Egyptian, with nothing between me and it, uh-huh. and I had quite the experience. And I just thought, I have to go there, and I have to go there now. So three days later, I was in Egypt. And um, and in those days, you were supposed to travel in with a group; you weren't supposed to go in oh, there on I, your own.
1: I remember that's kind of around the same time I was traveling. There, it was dangerous for young. I didn't go to Egypt, but I was. Uh, I went on a Turkish freighter back in 68, you know, and there was all these, you know, you'll be kidnapped, be careful, young women, you know. <laughs> well, they, haven't
2: stopped, they haven't stopped with that storyline since. Mm-hmm.
1: So,
2: anyway, so, so yeah, and then I just, I had such a mind-boggling experience in Egypt. I ended up spending three and a half hours inside the king's chamber the first time mm-hmm. with just one young Egyptian man who helped me get in there. And uh, there were all these apparitions in my pictures. well. I was hooked after that, let me tell you. Right. And so it's just been going to all these different countries to see, you know, to, it's basically tracking my past lives. And, and in, in South America, for example, I did not want to go to South America. I just felt this real aversion to it for years and years. Well, and then I started understanding that past lives, it's the situation you're born into. And then what happened when you passed when you died? And so I just started to understand that it didn't end well in South America. Well, it often doesn't end well through all these 5,000 years of patriarchy. A lot of blood, you know, blood from death and all that. Right. right. And so I'll right. well, just go and see. And of, and of course, it was a tremendously valuable trip. I was down there for 60 days. Uh-huh. Uh, and then it was like, yeah, okay, so something. Not great. That you know happened in another life. Okay, so now we've gotten over that.
1: Where else? Back to
2: Egypt. Egypt.
1: (laughs) Right. So, like, when you landed in Egypt, what was the first thing that called you that you had this encounter with that, like, really was it the? Mm -hmm.
2: So basically, okay. Let me just fill in a little. after my mother had come to, I, I was on this trip on my own and my mother and Anne had just, she said, uh, I want to come and meet you and we can go anywhere you want. And I said, okay, Greek cruise. And so we did the Greek islands in Turkey, the Ephesus. And we were staying in a hotel in Athens. And that's where I had gone to the national museum there. And mm-hmm. the Egyptian artifact. And I came back and I said, I'm going to Egypt when you leave. And my mother went, Oh, come on, you can't do that. I she was no, no, she was, Mother, no, everything, everything, no, 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 no.
1: Sounds like my mother.
2: (laughs) So I, 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 I I was, I overheard her telling the my mother was somebody who always wanted to talk to cleaning lady. So she starts talking to the cleaning lady. She said, "You should have seen my daughter in the museum today. She thinks she's going to go to Egypt." And she was kind of making (laughs) fun of me to the cleaning lady. Uh huh. And they were leaving. They were leaving that next day. And so I was free to go and resume my trip and go do what I wanted. And, right. uh, and the lady says, well, I'm Egyptian and I'm here working and my family is in Cairo. Oh. And I can ask my son to meet her and, they, and she can stay at my house. And, in fact, I've got a package to deliver, which was long before. If you didn't pack it, you shouldn't bring it. And so right. she gave us this package in a shoebox, which wasn't very heavy. And so off we went. I went. And when I brought the package to the family, there was a simple pair of slippers in the package. Oh. I mean, she didn't really have anything she needed. Anyway, so the son uh, decided he was going to take me to the Great Pyramid. Uh-huh. So we're driving up to it. And he says, there it is. There's the Great Pyramid. And I'm like, uh, he goes, what's the matter? I'm saying, are you sure that's the Great Pyramid? He goes, uh-huh. yeah.
3: He
0: goes, what's the matter? I'm like, well, it's not big enough.
2: and he's like what do you mean like what do you think you know about it (laughs) well it turned (laughs) out it was 30 feet bigger on each side because of the casing stones and the casing stones were missing so I'm like Uh no it doesn't quite look right (laughs) Uh uh-huh anyway so at that time you could go in for 10 minutes every hour and he said we'll go in with the group and then we'll stand at the back, and when they leave, we'll stay here. And then we'll hear them coming, which you absolutely, boom, 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 We hear everybody coming in. And says so then, you'll pretend to join the group and look around for 10 minutes. And when they leave, we'll stay. So we stayed in there for three
1: and a half hours. Wow. Oh, you couldn't do that today, could you?
2: Oh, I've done that several times. <laughs> but uh, all of- right. <laughs> but now you pay for a permit. We were just in there mm-hmm. not even a week ago um, mm-hmm. with the group for two hours. You just, you, you, you have to register with the Supreme Council of Antiquities and all that stuff. And everybody's name is registered with the police. And and then they, they let you do it if you pay
1: to do it. You don't mm-hmm. always get
2: the permits, but I've been lucky with that.
1: So that was your first trip there. You landed with an Egyptian family. That's mm-hmm. great. And how long did you stay that first time?
2: It was only a week. Um, uh-huh. I didn't want to impose on them. I didn't really know the ropes, and I was in my early
1: 20s. I mean, it right.
2: was really all by myself, you know, just wandering around.
1: Uh-huh. So yeah,
2: I think that was about a week. But I mean, I was hooked. I mean, the, and my whole life was about how to go back under what terms, and what would I do to really settle in and
1: uh-huh. and, uh-huh. and so the adventure begins. <laughs> We're yeah, going to have to compare adventure notes, Dr. Carmen. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, it definitely imprinted me. And then I spent, you know, several years doing other degrees and this and that with always this, this glowing need to go back again.
3: Mm-hmm. And, then,
2: and then I was at a, a conference, a conclave of Michael in Banff. And uh, there was speakers that said that they were going to be inside the Great Pyramid and all three chambers would be open. Oh. And of course, I didn't have any money. And I'm like, I'm going to be there. And it's like, you know, a lot of people would say, well, I don't have any money, so I can't go. And I was like, well, if I'm supposed to no, be No,
1: you'll be there. You'll be, be there. It.
2: And uh, so that that was all the way to 95. So since 95, I've been going regularly. In between 77 and 95, I was just getting myself organized and educated, I suppose.
0: Uh-huh. But it,
2: I never forgot about my experiences. So it's good that I had an early imprint. Early imprint, etherically, early imprint uh, physically, but mm-hmm. majorly early cellular memory
1: mhm i I had a cellular memory as a child, I used to dance around my living room in a gypsy like costume, and every time I'd hear Arabic music, like my blood would just start pounding, pounding, and I mean biologically, I don't have any Arabic blood. But it was just like so intense and um uh, i landed up dancing for uh the, at the university the arab students asked me to dance for them and at that time there were go go girls and I, i'm not going to do like that so I, I i made a little costume and i danced and the parents who were in their 60s and 70s just came to me and i said you dance like you just came out of the village. <laughs> and I felt like I'd just come out of the village. So that's that visceral memory is something else.
2: Yep. That's how it works.
1: hmm Mm-hmm. So here we are now, and uh, there's a lot we have to cover tonight. I'd like to invite Timothy to join us. Timothy, who's an amazing yacht designer and soon-to-be space craft designer. <laughs> Timothy, welcome. Come join the conversation.
4: Good morning. I'm going to say good morning because for Dr. Bolter and myself, it's, it's early morning. And for you guys, uh, varying degrees of evening and night, I guess. So um, good morning to you. All. And uh, should I call you Dr. Carmen or Dr. Bolter?
2: Everybody calls me Dr. Carmen, but...
4: Talk to like okay, like. great. Well, um, you can call me anything you like, so uh, I don't mind. Um, no, I, I just would like to say that you know, I've, I've watched your series before uh, numerous times, uh, the, the Pyramid Code, and uh, as I knew that we, we were going to talk this morning, on, this evening on the radio, I, uh, I took another look through this weekend and... Uh, I want to commend you once again because you know, the series is brilliant. It absolutely captures uh, an amazing balance between fact and speculation and it does it in such a sort of sensitive and artistic way. I think, I think you really should be congratulated for that. Thank so, you. Um, could I suggest um, that you are, ask, if you, if you tell the listeners, the best place to look at it because if they haven't seen it already... Um, it's still incredibly relevant and in, incredibly topical. Where where's the best place for listeners to to check in and, and, and watch it? Well Netflix. well
1: I mm-hmm. Cynthia, go ahead. Well on on the web page, right at the very top under show items, I have the pyramid code and when you click there it mentions the Netflix links and some other your tours and other things like that. So that too will make it easy to find.
2: Well, I mean, it got stolen and taken onto YouTube. Millions, tens, a hundred million people saw it on, on YouTube illegally. So um, whatever. I mean, that was a a labor of love that I gave to the universe. Um, it, Yeah, it just basically got stolen from under me. So there's no great place to watch it except Netflix. But I don't get anything from Netflix. I don't get anything from anywhere from it. <laughs> That's so... A criminal, the way of the actually, we the, the world it cost me five hundred and fifty thousand dollars out of my own money to make it, and I got about 100000 thousand hundred thousand back. so yeah, it's a pretty sad story, but it seems to be part of the course
4: well that that's, that's a shame to 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 that it ended up that way because you know its value is is, is you know it doesn't have a value because it, it's it's' so rich full of information, and also the way that you've recorded, you know, so many uh, iconic uh, people's con- contributors, you know, it really does encompass not only a lot of the thinking and the information, but also the sort of the contributors, people like John Anthony West, that unfortunately is Wested uh, now, um, and, and some others. I mean, Hakim, um, I forget his, his surname. Is it Hakim
2: Alwian. Alwian, Al-
4: Al- 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 Yes. I mean, these people are one of a kind, and uh, you've given them space to sort of tell their message, to share their message. But there's, four,
2: there's four of the 12 people interviewed that have passed. Really? Wow.
4: Yeah. Is, John Burke the and
2: John Major Jenkins, three of the four Johns have passed.
4: That's, that's, uh, so well, that's, it's, really, that's it's
2: really interesting because it has, and, and the purpose of doing it was that no one had really recorded Uh, Hakim at length, and he was about to pass himself. I mean, he needed to go. He was very arthritic and, you know, old. So my idea was to film him. So at uh, Chen Kuo Technology University in Taiwan, I was given all these pieces of equipment for international academic cooperation projects, and I was making interactive multimedia um, websites for my students. So I had all these, you know, fancy cameras and tripods and whatnot, and I would work for four months and get two months paid off on the schedule I was on. And so I'd always go back to Egypt, and I thought, well, if I'm filming my students, why can't I film in Egypt? And, you know, Hakim's not going to be around forever. So that's kind of how the whole thing
1: started with the pyramid. Mm. Organically.
2: Well, yeah, or magically, or
1: <laughs> or serendipitously.
2: <laughs> <Or
4: serendipity. laughs> well, I mean, from, from I haven't read your book, I have to say, um, but I but going back to, you know, I followed what you've been doing for years and uh, with great interest. And what I sense is a very sort of strong bond between you and Hakim, uh, with oh, your yeah. with your reincarnation. Uh, I say beliefs because I, 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 for you, I believe it's it's 100%, but, you know, some people may be skeptical still. But with your, your feelings of reincarnation, do you feel that, you know, you were at, at one with Hakim? Do you think that sort of his knowledge and teachings, because I, I think he was brought up in the, in the sort of the ancient way. Is that a fair way to describe his, his education, his, his, his way into the world?
2: Yeah, he was born in the village of Abusir. <laughs> which is along the Band of Peace, and then he moved to right at the foot of the sinks, the second house in. Um, and so he got the indigenous wisdom keeping uh, tradition from his elders, and then he trained in Europe, in Scandinavia, and got you know a proper Egyptology degree from Europe, and then became a traditional guide, at, and he was guide number fifty-three. And now they're up to 20,000 guides. So um, he, he, he again, was spanning both. But in terms of, you know, and I got a saying, you don't have to believe it. Like if people don't lie, they don't need to, fine. But in terms of how my life's turned out, I've needed to understand the who, what, where, and why. And uh, and so it's not that I believe it. It's that, you know, I've got a deep knowing of it. And, yes, I knew him in at least two major incarnations in Egypt. And, and, um, well, we weren't one, we were never married or anything, but uh, Mm -hmm. we were definitely part of a high court in two different situations. Okay, Uh, we're coming
1: up on a break now. I appreciate it. You are on the other side of midnight, and we're listening to Dr. Carmen Bolter, And the show tonight is Decapitation of the Great Pyramid. We'll continue this conversation on the other side of the break.
6: couple of ways that you can help tonight and what this show needs to do and that's by supporting the program. Club 19.5 it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's the price of a, a few cups of coffee or a couple of lattes if you go with your, your partner um, and you can have all the shows in the past and the special features that we offer more and more and there's more coming up. That's exciting stuff coming up and the other way is there's a donate button. Um, again, with a show like this All of us contributing as much as we can energy in itself it makes things go talking about revolutions and moving (laughs) moving things forward so on the home page is a donate button on your phone it would be on your navigation menu and on each page as you are sort of going through the show if you're on the home page and you click on our show banner and go through it's on the left hand side at the very top on the left hand column
1: Welcome back. To the Other Side of Midnight, Richard T. Moglen to the Other Side of Midnight. The show tonight is decapitation of the Great Pyramid. And we have our special guest is Dr. Carmen Bolter, who has created a great gift to the universe, the Pyramid Code. And we just found out that her generosity of spirit was rewarded by YouTube pirates. So let's all support her in... uh, um, her fundraising for her new documentary that she's coming out with. I am being joined also by Timothy Saunders, who's co-hosting, and we are in conversation with Dr. Carmen. Welcome.
4: Yeah, Dr. Carmen, um, I know you just Hods on the hoof coming back from, from Egypt. I'm sure you have uh, some, some interesting news to tell us. But, um, before you do, w- would you like to tell us a little bit about your, your new project? The uh, Is it called the New Atlantis? This is a new documentary series.
2: Well, um, I've got footage from 14 countries. I've been uh, doing a lot of research on Atlantis over the whole time. And... Uh, It really is quite a compelling story and um, I've kind of run into a little bit of production difficulty in terms of finding editors and animators that understand the material because at least Egypt has got some concrete things still there and Atlantis has got um, lots of evidence from it but a little bit more remote and less direct. And so it's still a work in progress, but right now funding's the issue to finish it. But it's kind of corrupt out there in terms of, um, you know, where to put things. So it's gone through a few permutations. It may end, it, you know, new, the new Atlantis is a working title. It could end up being Pyramid Code 2 uh, now that I'm outside the uh, the contract of that I had with the agent. So um, mostly I'm looking for people who are able to Complete it with the editing, and uh, and some high quality animators that can uh, finish up some of the animations because it's very animations driven. As is the Pyramid Code, there's 174 animations in the five episodes of the Pyramid Code. So I'm just waiting for the right moment, um, you know, for everything to come together for that. But I've definitely got, you know, most of the footage I need and interviews in the field and. Um, yeah, I'm pretty confident that uh, the, the story will be mind, mind-boggling and uh, epic in the same way that the Pyramid Code has been.
1: It's very exciting. Well, I was just looking at a couple little teasers when I was googling the New Atlantis project, and I think it's going to be amazing.
2: Yeah, definitely. Thank you.
4: Well, I'm definitely excited to see it. And is it going to be like a sort of a Five six part series again? Do you think? Or is well, it could it could, it could on... be
2: more. Like when I think about you know, Ancient Aliens went on for twelve seasons. Um, it you know there's a lot a lot a lot of material. If there's support to continue making episodes, um, I thought I would just follow in the in the pattern that the Pyramid Code uh, was in at first. Um, but it could expand to more if there's uh,
4: support for it. Mm. I wouldn't compare your work with Ancient Aliens, I have to say, personally <laughs> Thank speaking. <you>. Okay. <laughs> um, Okay. I appreciate it's a series that's gone on and on and on. Um, but, I mean, your work, certainly, I look at the Pyramid code is was absolutely packed full, absolutely, you know, brimming to the top of, with, with information and, and intelligent speculation. And uh, I'm absolutely fascinated to see this new series. So uh, I hope... Uh, I hope we can all come together and, and, and help you to make it happen. Thank you. But, um, I was so what? Sorry, go ahead, Cynthia.
1: No, I'm just curious. Uh, what is the best way we can help make that happen?
2: I have no idea. I mean, basically, I think that if 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 people have the skill, the editing skill, and they speak English. Um, you know, it can be done long distance, possibly. You know, maybe maybe people need to be volunteering their time. Um oh. you know, I'm not sure how, but I'm, you know, another eighty to a hundred thousand in on this project and I, I just I just can't keep spending my own money. So, boy, well, yeah. no, I mean
4: that there's a as a principle there as well. I mean you share great value with the world then the world world should share great value with you as well. I believe that in that sort of term System of ancient, mat.
2: <laughs> well, so far it's this copyright thing where everybody, you know, steals stuff and makes it look like theirs. <clears throat> um, anyway, that's that's just been a thorn in my shoe.
4: Yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean, that, that's that's that is a great shame how that's happened to the previous one. But um, I mean, there are many success stories from other people where they've they've managed to. Uh, control it in, in different ways. I, I don't. I'm not an expert on how to do this, but I mean, there must be ways of protecting your work. Um,
2: <laughs> not yet.
4: Not, not yet. yet. Okay. No,
2: no, no, no. I, I went to a conference <clears throat> to speak at a conference in California, and this woman said, oh, "I've come all the way from London to speak to you, and I, and I hope we can have a chance to talk." I said, "Great, start talking." She said, Let me guess, your agent ripped you off.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> yes, but why would you ask me that or say open with that? Oh, I'm a psychotherapist, and all my clients are movie stars and rock stars, and every one of them's in therapy because their agent ripped them off.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh.
2: <laughs> so it's more common than it is unusual.
1: I see. Okay.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued, and I'm very curious to see it. So, if, if there's anything I can do to sort of uh, to push it along and insist you, support you, then know, I'd be delighted. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I know people that can edit. I, I can edit. I, I, uh, I also make 3D models. Very different sorts of 3D models: um, yachts and, and, and luxury boutique hotels and that type of thing. But you know, I mean, Cynthia you and I between us, I mean, we we know people and uh, maybe we can Mm -hmm. sort of uh, encourage
3: Mm
2: -hmm. a
4: a vein of of creativity that that can uh, support you to do this, Carmen. Thank you. And I I
2: think it's going to take that kind of community effort because it's not just about throwing money at it now. It's really about finding bright people that have the sensibilities and the understanding because even the editors for the Pyramid Code, I mean, you know, we date back to when we were editing it. You know, these concepts were, you know, much more cutting edge, and now they're a little bit more known. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and the editors were having a hard time going, really? This stuff is really? Is this really what you think? And uh, (laughs) and they were spending a lot of time Googling and researching while they were editing just to make sure they weren't making stuff up. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's quite the process because this is really, really about our ancient past. And I'm really proud of the research that I've done and the storyline that I'm that I'm developing with it. And so, um, yeah, it has to be finished. I mean, I finish everything I start, so it has to be
4: finished. Well, I look forward to it. So, I mean, there there are a hundred questions I have, and okay, let's but, get but going think, on them then. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> but before before I do, I think that. Um, I'm just wondering, would you like to share with us some of the news that you, you have, having just uh, returned from Egypt, I believe?
2: Yep, just came back a week ago. Um, well, we, as I mentioned before, we had private time. Um, so the the trip was bookended with uh, private time between the Paws of the Sphinx at sunrise the first morning, and sunset the last morning, two hours inside the Great Pyramid. So off we went, and um, they, we were met by... You know, the Department of Antiquities and the police were there to guide us in and, you know, make sure everybody was behaving properly. And, and, uh, and then we got back on the bus and off we went to the hotel. Well, during that same night, I don't know if somebody snuck into the plateau. Like now there's that 14-foot wall 20 miles all the way around. And uh, it used to be there were a couple of watchmen on the plateau. Uh, And then it went to 100, and then it went to rotating shifts, so nobody could get to know anybody. And, you know, there were probably eight different police there when we were in the pyramid, just making sure everything was copacetic. And some guy, whether he stayed on the plateau after it closed or what, um, but he was on the plateau, uh, and of course, nobody thought, you know, all the people that came in went out, you know, with my group. So I had nothing to do with my group, but in that night, before the plateau opened again, this guy climbed the pyramid to the top. And, and I've been up there twice in the olden days when it wasn't this tricky. Well, it was still tricky. Um, and there, there used to be this big tripod on the top and, you know, I train everybody to see that the Great Pyramid does not have a capstone. It just got had that little tripod thing. And the second pyramid has a capstone that glows red, as you've seen in the pyramid code. And the tripod was from the end of the Second World War, where they put three flags up, an Egyptian flag, and I don't know what the other two were. And the flags are long gone, but that tripod stayed up there. So this guy gets to the top of the pyramid. And these were like big trees. Like they, It looks like this tiny little thing that looks like matchsticks when you look at the pyramid bar, but we've got to realize, you know, 2.3 million stones, the pyramid's huge. And so this, this tripod at the top was quite substantial as well, like whole trees. And he, I don't know how he lifted it because it must have been really heavy, but he, he picked the whole thing up and threw it down the side of the pyramid. Apparently, when he was climbing, he was throwing stones at the police. No doubt, the police were at the bottom pointing machine guns at him, but they didn't shoot. And uh, he came down and they arrested him. And so our group was pretty, you know, excited about The energy was particularly strong. I spent a lot of time in, the, you know, I spent three and a half hours in the pit by myself in the dark, in the subterranean chamber. I spent a lot of time in the pyramid by myself. A lot, a lot. And, you know, there's, a, there's energy in there that, you know, you talked about electromagnetic frequencies and whatnot. But I've done research um, using a, a measurement device because I suspected that there was something that connected us to being more psychic because the more time I spent in there, the more psychic I got, though it wasn't direct or immediate. Anyway, so, you know, we thought we had Schumann. The Schumann resonance was way up that night and all over the place. And the energy of the group itself, um, there was something really strong going on. So anyway, he, he, as you said, decapitated the pyramid. Now, that device, whatever you want to say, was wooden. So I don't think it was interfering with the energetics of the pyramid because it wasn't um, unnatural. But it, it, it didn't belong there. So it's no big loss. Uh, but when you think of the security and the fact that this guy got away with it, and this was the night of April 30th, May 1st, and we know how many you know false flag events have happened between April 15th and May 1st over the
4: years. Absolutely. Um, we, we've covered a few of those in, in recent weeks. We, we did uh, a show on the Titanic, which was uh, April the 15th. We did Notre Dame, which was April the 15th, and there's a whole list of other terrible... Boston incidents. City bombing and
2: all that, Boston Marathon. Good. Yeah, it goes on and on. Anyway, so, but that, and and I don't know if this was premeditated or just destructive, but, I mean, certainly not smart. And, you know, I don't think anybody wants to be in, a, in an Egyptian jail. Uh, I think it had to be,
1: hmm? could it, it wouldn't it have to be premeditated? I mean, didn't he have to plan to wait them out to go up there? Well, that's
2: a few chosen people have done over the years, but... Um, shall I disclose? This one time, probably the first time I did it, I was with again a young man, an Egyptian man, who was helping me, you know, get this thing organized. And so we started climbing up the pyramid in the dark. And uh, you know, here comes the police, pointing a machine gun at me. Uh, like, oh. just be still. Just, just be still and wait. It's okay. Don't worry. You won't shoot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh these are the memories to cherish <laughs> no, no.
2: and then okay let's keep going you know so the so nothing really happened so i mean i started thinking that the guns weren't loaded and that it was just a big you know uh Chip. security theater sort of deal but anyway um that's how i know how big the trees are you know that that, that were that made that tripod so premeditated whatever destructive some kind of a, who knows what the motivation was, but now there's no capstone. So if you ever look at a picture, you know of the Great Pyramid, if, and then sometimes the cap, the the, I didn't mean capstone, I meant the tripod. But, um, you know, sometimes it's a little faint if you see the pyramid from far away. But from this point forward, if, if there's nothing up there, it happened the
4: night of April 30th. Look, okay, the just just going to point out that if any of the listeners would like to go to the Other Side of Midnight website, the Other, Midnight, Other Side of Midnight.com, and go to the Radio with Pictures uh,
1: section. Then... capitation of the Great Pyramid show.
4: There we go. Thank you, Kintia. <laughs> and uh, each of us have some images in the Radio with Pictures section. And I see that uh, Dr. Carmen has some very good images in there, which you can take a look at uh, while you're listening. Uh, I've also listed uh, one or two, uh, quite a few um, um, photographs and web links as well uh, in relation to the, the capstone. And uh, perhaps we can have some time to talk about some of them later. But uh, one of the more um, poignant ones is, is one I've in, entitled uh, Horizontal Jogging atop the, uh, the Great Pyramid, which
3: <laughs> I, would, uh,
4: I would urge this listeners over the age of 18 to watch, uh, to look at only. So, um, but, I mean, many people have have uh, climbed the pyramids. I unfortunately never have yet, but I would love to, I have to say. Um, but, I mean, it, it is like a, a challenge, isn't it? I mean, it must be like a sort of, a, you know, a challenge to, to recant later in life. And so, you know, when I visited Egypt, you know, I was able to climb up the top and here's a photograph, here's a selfie, here is something we did um uh, no so apart from the, the archaeological or the sort of you know spiritual or energy um you know reasoning to go up there you know there is a sort of very surface you know very surface thin level thinking to go up there as well but i mean the the date is quite poignant as you say dr Khan. Uh, do you do you think what what do you think the intent is this guy i mean do you do you think he is do you think he sort of drank too much Egyptian beer and and just thought, I'm going for it? Or, I mean, do you think he... No, they don't. A, they don't
2: drink. I think it has something to do with just the way they're desecrating Catholic churches in France. I think it's because the Egyptians don't care about the pyramids. They would have taken them down if we'd had the technology to take them down. So I think it's just kind of blasphemy, vandalism... And they wouldn't know that, you know, that wood wooden structure had nothing to do with the ancient, you know, technology. And so I think that they're just slurring against the sacredness, which is what mm-hmm. they're doing against the Catholic churches. Well, I think it's just I'm, part I'm, of a real uh, sad and corrupt uh, situation that's going on on the planet.
4: Well, I'm very happy that you've you know, taken up that point. I think that in, in, certainly in terms of many of the uh, attacks on churches and, and mosques and, and temples and so on in recent weeks, one could argue in this case that perhaps by removing the, the wooden tripod, that it's actually returning the pyramid to its not totally natural, but more natural. State. I don't know if there's any, any validity to that at all. It's just pure speculation.
2: No, but that's what we think, and I think Mm -hmm. it's a good thing, because it wasn't destroying anything from the ancient past. It was taking something off that was added later that had no business being there in the first place. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, so, but I don't know that the motivation of an Egyptian person who doesn't care about the ancient technology and the pyramids uh, would have put those two together. So, I think, you know, our group, when they heard about it, um, were quite happy, and, you know, we blew the lid off the pyramid, you know, they were all so thrilled that feeling we had done something. Um, I was surprised to hear anybody, you know, put themselves in it. It's kind of like taking a selfie at the top of the pyramid. It's like we have <laughs> a selfie anywhere in Egypt. I mean, what does it have to do with you? Nothing. But that's kind of the culture that we've, uh, you know, had around, have around us now. But I think it was more of a slur against the whole, uh ancient technology, ancient everything, like, like religion. It's a, and, and they think of it as Egyptian religion, but I mean, I don't because it's not, not what it was
4: about. So, no, I mean, it, it could be, I guess, a slur against what the, the state is doing to hmm. the, the ancient site of Giza. I mean, you mentioned just now this huge wall that's 20 miles long. I mean, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like um, Trump's been visiting Egypt recently, but, I mean, that they, they built a 20-mile wall around Giza and uh, to keep people out, basically, except for people who pay and have licenses to take photographs and, and so on and so on. I've, I've not visited Giza for, for many years, actually, but, I mean, I, I get the impression it's pretty strict these days that you, you you need permits or you need to pay the extra to take photographs in certain directions, certain places. Is, is that maybe a slur against the establishment because the, the the, the pyramids should surely be, you know, an inheritance to us all as opposed to, uh, the few, maybe. Well,
2: Akeem was always going on about,
4: um, sorry,
2: my throat. Hold on one second. Of how the, it's abuse of the ancient artifacts and,
4: um, (laughs) <laughs> Pardon me. Oh, it's happening. Take your time, Dr. Carmen. I, I can drink some. I'm drinking Earl Grey at this end, so I can take a drink while you're doing that as well. No <laughs> problem. <laughs> okay. House. I, I just had some water.
2: So it's yeah, it's a real. It's a real. Um, it's a disgrace. The way they they think of archaeology as moving entrances, moving parking lots restricting photos, saying you need a camera pass when there are no camera passes, and then hassling people to pay and try to take people's cameras away from them. I mean, it's it's just... It's abuse. It's, a, it's abuse of the artifacts and it's abuse of the people. So, you know, the pyramid's out there for how many tens of thousands of years without a wall, and all of a sudden everything's being restricted. So I think it, it speaks more to... What's going on at the end of patriarchy is how I think of it. Um, But it's disgusting because they're not doing any real archaeology as far as I can see. And, you know, there's a very small percentage of Egypt that's actually out in the open. The rest of it's underground. So they're not taking
1: care of things at all. When you say underground, you mean physically underground or you just mean covert or both? I meant physically underground, but it is Mm -hmm. also underground. I mean, the the storyline,
2: I mean, I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about the museum. Um, But, I mean, it's just disgusting how they treat the stuff and how little respect they have for any of it. And the story is, Ramsey cut off the hands of his enemies and, you know, that's what was going on. It was all warring and it had nothing to do with beautiful pre-dynastic, you know, anything. And so they don't really, they don't know what it was. As I said before, they would have taken the pyramids down if they had had the technology for it. But, you know, putting a barricade up, you know, in front of the Sekhmet statue in the shrine to Sekhmet, you know, it's like a, a, a street barricade in front of her. I mean, it's just, it's disgusting. It's so not respecting the sacred so the wall is part of that but what did the wall become it became a, a surface for graffiti they cut all the trees down that the that the locals had spent so much time nurturing because they didn't want anybody climbing the tree to get over the wall and uh and apparently it doesn't work because the guy still got on the plateau anyway so you know, this is the same sort of thing as we have at the airports and whatnot, security theater, that doesn't really do much other than
4: get people full, full of fear. So. Well, I mean, the, the fear begins at the very... I mean, even when I visited the first time, which was, I think, probably in 82, something like that, I mean, I was amazed to see, you know, armed police. I mean, why, why would you need guns around this, you know, beautiful monument? And, you know, how would that beautiful monument sort of incite unrest or, or, you know, uh, riots or something? Why would you even need, you know, guns? And, of course, that was my first reaction as a sort of a naive traveler in 1982. But, I mean, from from the sound of it, there are more police with more machine guns. I mean, why would you need a machine gun at the Pyramid, you know, at the...
2: uh, Okay, well, here's my theory. And first yeah. of all, you're going to see machine guns in, you know, Switzerland and other places at airports and whatnot. And everybody's got sure. happy now. But sure. I think that, well, I know. Okay, there's a big, big, big lid on the whole real story of Egypt. I mean, the fact that the Pyramid Code even got out and reached hundreds of millions of people is a blessing. Because it is, you know, telling a different story or inviting people to consider a different way of looking at things. Okay, so the American government has been giving $2 billion a year to Egypt. And mostly it's, well, they say it's to protect Americans when they're there. So if we have one American on a trip, we have to have police escorts and everything because I think they think Americans really like guns and they feel protected by them. And then Mubarak, if he, you know, he, he was in there for 30 years and if he gave back the amount of money that he put in his pocket from this, you know, and then of course all the young men have to go to the army for three years. If he gave back that money, it would be 10,000 US dollars for every man, woman, and child. What, what would a family of five benefit from, you know, $50,000 they could get together and build new schools and do this and that? And, you know, and the infrastructure in Egypt is just, you know, really sad. So now we've got the new guy in there who's voted himself in till 2030, and it's the same $2 billion are coming. And so it's all about making some kind of big, you know, police state over there. But basically, it's all about no, 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 not allowed, not allowed, not allowed, not allowed. (laughs) So even with, you know, I went over there many times to get permits and to set things up and You know, the the, uh, Air Force owns the sky, and the Minister of Defense had to sign the order before there were drones to fly the helicopter, and, you know, it's military, military, military everywhere you look, you know, and even with a carte blanche permit that I paid lots of money for, uh, the chief inspector at Saqqara threw this 20-page document all in Arabic with signs, seals, you know, stamps all over it, and threw it down and said how do i know you didn't forge it like (laughs) and they're still not allowed not allowed hakim ended up at the the police station the day we were filming i've never seen him intimidated
1: we, we need to hold on let's hold that thought because we're coming up to the top of the hour break i appreciate it dr carmen we're speaking with dr carmen you're on the other side of midnight and the show tonight is decapitation of the great pyramid and we'll meet you on the other side of the break.
3: Welcome
1: back to Richard C. Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight. The show tonight is Decapitation of the Great Pyramid. And our, our wonderful guest is Dr. Carmen Bolter, and this is Kinthea, and I'm joined by Timothy Saunders, co-hosting with me. So you, you were saying, Car- Carmen, about the uh, treatment of um, Hakeem.
2: Well, Hakim and, and anybody else, I mean, basically, they, 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 I think the only words they know, the watchman know is not allowed. And they're not used to people coming along with permits. So they just say, no, 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 stop. Don't take a picture. In fact, you're not even supposed to take a picture of a donkey on the street. I mean, they've got the whole thing shut right down. Certainly, you know, can't just go over there with a drone and take pictures without ending up in jail. So, you know, take footage. So basically everything is restricted now. I've had a particular situation there. I don't know if you've ever heard of The Champion. Um, he's in the Guinness Book of World Records for running up the pyramid in four minutes and down in three.
3: Oh my and gosh!
2: He had the keys to the pyramid. He's a Fayed. Dodi Fayed's uh, grandfather uh, was given the the land around the Giza Plateau at the end of the British occupancy, and that, that family, their family, moved to Alexandria and then to London. Princess Di's Dodi. And the rest of the Fayed family, there's two thousand cousins. And Champion was Hafnawi Fayed. And uh two whatever, thousand. Two
1: thousand
2: <laughs>
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. No, I mean they're real relatives. <laughs> and uh anyway, so when Zahi came along, Zahi Hawass, as a junior, you know, bachelor level archaeologist, Champion was his boss. And so You know, I spent a lot of time in the village and I was friends with Champion. And one day I was living there and he he sent a young boy to summons me to come for tea the next day. And so I did. And he said, I want to take you to Zahi tomorrow. I said, OK, fine. And so he was old at this point. And uh, we went into Zahi's office. Zahi's like, what do you want? Oh, I'd like (laughs) to see the pre-restoration pictures of the Sphinx. No, 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 no. What do you want? And I kept saying, I'd like to see the pre-restoration like a broken record. And it turned out after this dance of him saying, you know, what do you want? And me answering the same thing. They were in his talk, or he had them. But anyway, so the champion said to him, I've got something to ask you. You know that I'm going to die soon. And I was your boss, and I've got a favor to ask you. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what he's going to ask. Mm. And so I went, okay, fine. You know, rolled his eyes. And Champion said to him, um, whatever she asks you, you say, yes.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow.
3: <laughs> the universe is your back.
2: <laughs> and so he did. So how many days did I spend? I'd show up at his office at 10 and he'd say, yes, I'll see you. And then I wait till five thirty, and then I'd see him, but I'd see the workings of the office and the secretaries and listen to him yell at people all day. And, uh, and then I'd get the permit, you know, so that's how all this happened. It was, you know, because of that simple fact. And he did. He said, yes,
1: he did. Uh, so you so, respected him enough to, to do his wishes.
2: Oh, for well, you have to. I mean, he was yeah. running the
1: whole thing. So mm-hmm.
2: even in his absence, he's still, he's still got his finger in it all. Mm-hmm. So... um, but the the point of the matter is it's just because I got like a lot of people think, well, if you can do it, I can do it. Like I'm going to go and take measurements and this and that. And (laughs) the whole thing is so desperately restricted and there's so few legitimate studies that can be done. And when I read that article you sent me that introduced this whole uh, possibility of an interview, uh, it's like I've been tracking these stories of everybody who's tried to do expeditions and how they get shut down at the end and, DNA testing for King Tut and how that got shut down several times and you know then they moved the DNA labs into the basement of the museum and you know and then they wanted to prove that Tut was like not in sun, which is not the way it went you know because he was that would make Tut white instead of black because Egypt's in Africa and it goes on like that so I mean I've been involved in a lot of these stories and it's interesting that you know that that you know I've been tracking it for so long but the long and short of it is is that they're not they don't care enough at all about the artifacts.
1: Hmm. Sad. Do you see any hope on the horizon?
2: No, I see it just getting worse. I mean, is it time to talk about the museum, Timothy? Jump just in. Yeah,
4: I mean Dr. Carmen, I mean we we have so much material to talk about. I mean if if you feel it's it's time, it's time, let's go for it. Let's talk about that. But so you were talking about abuse earlier. And I think that, you know, I think the dots are connecting that let's go there. Yes. Yeah.
1: I just want to mention to our audience that on the page, Carmen's items, she has uh, many photos of the museum that she's going to be talking about.
2: Okay. So uh, I considered Hakeem to be my mentor. And for 10 years, every day I was in Egypt uh well that I didn't have a group I would sit with him and I lived there for two and a half years and I was back and forth many times as you know so one of his tutelages was that he would take me to the museum and we would do two hour sessions and we went over every room and every inch of that museum and he would say it's not being taken care of because they turned this thing over and you're not supposed to move things around in a museum You're supposed to put a sign that says the this, the bust of Nefertiti was here and it's gone because of this and it's going to be back on this day. You're not supposed to just move things around and scramble them up. Now, the museum, the original museum, was built by Napoleon. And at the end of the French occupancy, it was given to the army. And after that, oh, this looks like a, a knife. We'll put it with the kitchen stuff. And so they didn't leave things in situ so you could trace things. So it's really mixed up. Now, it used to be that if you spent one minute at every exhibit in the, the National Museum in Egypt, you would be there for nine months. That's how much yeah. stuff is in there. Ah, okay. that's, that's incredible. Awesome. Well, mm-hmm. awesome and incredible. Okay, so Hakeem had a routine, and, and I wasn't allowed to speak at the museum. Now I am. Uh, and so he would come when I had a group, and he would do the talk. And so we always did the same thing. He had his target items. You know, and the Pyramid Code really is his teaching. I mean, if you're going to boil it down, and uh, so then, you know, a couple of years ago, like I've been going every six months now since I live in Spain, so that's like five rounds of going. Uh, but I mean, I was doing that almost every year anyway. So after the the Arab Spring, I, it's it's known that the museum was ran was opened, and you know, people stole things out of it. Okay, fine. <laughs> But since then, I mean, so many things have disappeared. It's just ridiculous. So they also started letting you take pictures, you know, in the, in the recent time. Like there was that whole period of time for about 20 years where you couldn't take pictures no matter what. And my one-hour permission to film in the middle of it being crowded, you saw how crowded the museum was in the pyramid code, uh, was $5,000 for one hour. Oh my and there was goodness. a big German guy there who's like, how come you got to take pictures and we can't take pictures? And so he kept standing between the camera and the artifact and followed us around so he wouldn't have to take the pictures. But we weren't, you know, we were in, on such a, you know, pace. I wasn't going to start explaining to him what I went through to get that permit and how much it cost, right? You you want to give them $5,000 and wait six months? Go right ahead. You can do it too. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Anyway, so, these are, so I would take a few steps to go and talk about a certain artifact, and it was gone. And then I'd take another few steps, and it was gone. And then over time, the next six months, more things were gone. And the next six months, whole rooms were closed. And so there was uh, an, uh, 28 statues from the Temple of Queen Hatshepsut were all thrown into a pit at the same time, 20 years after she died. But what that meant was all the pieces of the broken bits were in the, in the same pit, so they were able to put back together, and then these artifacts ended up all over the world. And that's part of my traveling all over the world, because there's Egyptian bits that ended up in, all over the place, right? And so, including Taiwan, surprisingly, and here, surprisingly, there's a little temple here that uh, UNESCO gave to Spain for helping rescue the um, temples that ended up underwater after the Aswan Dam. Anyway, so there's museums all over the world that have Egyptian artifacts, and um, and so they got distributed. So anyway, there was a thing in, at the Metropolitan Museum a couple of years ago where the 28 statues of Hatchitsit were all together for the first time since they were thrown in the pit in the what ancient What a time. celebration. Well, and I was alone in there, The you know, the... A group left, and the watchman decided to go and have a cigarette or whatever, and I ended up alone in there just crying my head off. But, you know, those things never went back to Egypt. They never went back. So Maybe they, they were safer. Well, safer. <laughs> From, Where are uh, they? Oh, I mean, Hakim oh, okay. would say that too. How do you know that things being elsewhere isn't the right idea? But uh, th- that is just disgusting that they didn't send them back. And so they've closed whole rooms. They've opened up walls to you know make it airspace instead of shelves room after room closed and so you know I know that museum really well thanks to Hakim teaching me and showing me room after room and more than once over a period of 10 years and you know and he really you know so there's there's you know one picture of the, the, the the beard of the sphinx which happens to be a replica ripped right off the wall you know, the paint falling off the wall. They haven't cleaned the place in years. It's disgusting. So this time I was, I almost passed out. Okay, here's the story. And I almost passed out because of the, it's just disgusting what they're doing in there. But the story is that the new museum is finished and they're bringing the King Tut stuff there. Well, there's, a couple of pictures there of the construction site and it looks like an abandoned construction site. Like I've been past it many times over the past couple of years and okay and I was I took a great interest in the museum the new library of Alexandria years ago and so I'd go online and it'd say the new library is open. So I'd book my group to go to Alexandria and we'd go and the, the ground wasn't even broken. Then, oh, no, 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 now it's finished, okay? So a couple of years later, go back up there. Okay, now it's a construction site, my point. From the time they announced the opening of this new museum online, the time it was actually finished was 12 years. So oh. now they're doing, Now they're doing it again, okay? So they're saying, so my friend from Norway said, no, no, the museum's open. It's like I was there three days ago. There's cranes all over the place. It's not open. There's no road to get in. You know, there's no parking lot. And so what they were saying um, last year was that they were moving the King Tut artifacts in there. (laughs) And then there was an article, and the the guide the trip before was saying, oh, I'm so sad. I'm like, sad about what? He says, there was a fire at the new museum and all the King Tut stuff burned. It's like, what fire? Are you going to really bring... Those world treasures to an unsecured building that's not even, that out, there's big holes in it. It's not even finished. You can't secure it. And if the outside's not finished, the inside's not finished. Okay, so that's the storyline. But they took the King Tut, some of the King Tut stuff. Now, just a, a caveat here. Anytime you see the King Tut exhibit, a King Tut exhibit on a traveling show, those are all replicates. And they know how to make pretty good replicas, but they don't feel the same. So I remember the first time I saw the traveling exhibit, I'm like, good. But no, there's something wrong here. Okay, then I learned the King Tut stuff has never left Egypt, as far as I know. Anyway, so we're walking around the museum now, and, and there's whole rooms. Look at the pictures. Whole rooms, whole cases, case after case. And then there's all these boxes, crates down on the lower level, Rome the dresses and then the, the cranes to move the heavy objects. Well, this time, they filled in the places that, that the artifacts had been stolen with stuff out of the warehouse that's broken. So Amenhotep III, Aknaughton's father, had made 180 Sekhmet statues. And only five of them are in the National Museum. Three at the foot of the big uh, Queen T and the Third statues when you first walk in and you look right to the back. And then two on the way up the stairs to the King Tut exhibit. Well, there's six of them in, in the Metropolitan Museum. Um, you know, they're all over the world. But anyway, so I just, I just about had a heart attack when I saw this. They took a broken segment statue with no hands and no feet and a smashed face. And replaced it Replaced a perfect one with that I'm telling you So where did the perfect one go? The shift disc Which is, you know, widely described in the Pyramid Code I mean, they kept moving it here, moving it there And it drove Hakeem crazy And it was in the relative vicinity Not where it had been But they shoved the case in between a bunch of other cases I didn't put a picture of that in um, and they put it beside a reed basket that Moses could have been found in. So they got the, the the most primitive technology and the most sophisticated technology beside it. Everything mixed up. And and then when you look around, there's all these false doors, which were usually in the backdrop of, of the artifacts. And all you see is false doors because they took all the artifacts. So... And then the, the jewelry, the King Tut jewelry, like you can see where the pins were holding up a necklace or something, and it's gone, right? But then I started looking at this stuff, and I keep emphasizing, I really know the museum, right? So when something, right. right, and I've been poring over my pictures and, right, for, for decades, okay? So like, I've just, I'm trained to, to see, right? Anyway, so all of a sudden, I'm like, why is this stuff tarnishing? I'm like, wait a minute, gold doesn't tarnish? Wow. So they've been making replicas, sticking them in the museum and selling the originals. The biggest heist ever. <laughs> and then they're saying the things it, it burned. Well there's no way you're gonna take this stuff and put it into a building that's not even closed. With cranes all around. I mean it's just <laughs> not it's just not logical. So they expect everybody they, and then they're mixing everything up, New Kingdom, Old Kingdom, and, and broken They must so think the world is stupid. They must well, think And the that's best. the thing. That's the thing with patriarchy and narcissistic, you know, abuse is I'm right, you're stupid. Right? And that doesn't work really well. And so they and then people are, you know, take a selfie with me. Well the thing's in ruin. So there's a couple of pictures in there where it looks like they went to a Nubian village and had kids make some stuff up. Funny face things, and there's one gold statue. Okay, everything in Egypt, in the temples and in the artifacts, is about perfect balance. And Chris uh-huh. Dunn did a lot of work with that, with what he calls Ramses II. But I asked him, Do you really think that's Ramses? And he said, No. And I'm like, Why do you keep telling everybody it's Ramses? Oh, it's easier that way because that's what everybody thinks. It's like, Come on. So, <laughs> but anyway, so it's not Ramses, and it's probably Amenhotep the III, and then Ramsey came along and said, oh, no, no, that's me, that's not him. Okay, so there's Mm. been shenanigans all along. And you got to remember that patriarchal Egypt started with the first dynasty, and Hakim, you know, says the treasures were the real, real spirituality was before that. And it percolated back up in the 18th dynasty with Hatshepsut, Nefertiti, and Akhenaten, and Tut, right? And they were having a memory of the way it used to be, And the rest of patriarchal Egypt was the warring and the the other stuff, the ego and all of that. Anyway, so whole cases, empty, whole rooms, like a whole wing. And then we come up the stairs and it used to have all this papyrus in it. And the whole thing was empty. Oh, my God. All you could see was the hooks on the wall. I mean, I was staggering around and there's pictures in there. You can see the paint falling off the wall. So they went and got the junk, the broken junk. Out of the warehouses to replace the good stuff. Now they could be making artifacts and selling the artifacts. I mean, which is probably not the best idea anyway. But no, they're taking the real stuff and selling it, and putting the art. And so there's poured things that you can see it's fake, and they don't even do anything to make it look a little antique. Okay, and then there's shoes. If you look at the pictures. Okay, so there's there's a picture that I took last time that's got all the beat-up shoes that obviously were worn by somebody. And then they got a new showcase full of brand-new shoes. And it's such a dramatic difference. Wow. ancient if they're brand-new and it doesn't look like anybody ever wore them? And they all look identical. (laughs) They're all identical. Exactly. So the thing is is that you have to be stupid. And so it's just a free-for-all in there and, you know, like, if you listen to, if we had a recording of me speaking, you know, three, four trips ago, it's like, oh, well, what I would have told you about is this thing that was here. A few more steps. Oh, oh, that's gone, too. Okay, well, here's something that's still here. So it's not like there's nothing that's still there. But if you could have been one minute at each exhibit and been in there for nine months, you know, of the, oh, oh, oh and when you first walk in, on the right-hand side is a a replica of the Rosetta Stone. The real one is in the British Museum. And on the left, there was this fantastic statue. And they put in a fake one, shorter, not quite as proportionate. I'm very sensitive to the proportions of everything because that's where the magic comes in and the proportions of the temples. And, you know, you see, if you go to a papyrus factory or a a perfume palace, sometimes they draw things on. And even Abu Simbel was
1: later. and, And the proportions are wrong. So it Anthony doesn't West would have a, been crazy. It would have driven me? him crazy. John Anthony West, it would have driven him crazy.
2: Yeah. And Hakeem. Yeah. I mean, Hakeem just, you know, was yelling
4: in my ear the whole time. It's like it's abuse. It's abuse. <laughs> and it is. Does common May may I interject a little just a little um the just to play devil's advocate a little bit. I mean, if if I take the mainstream view, uh I think about a year or so ago, I watched a National Geographic documentary about the uh, Great Egyptian Museum, the Gem, that is, I think it's also known, the, one, the, new, the new museum. And in this documentary, it was portrayed as a, you know, a, a construction site that was coming to a completion. Yes, it was late. Yes, there was still work going on, and sort of like I remember specific issues, like you know. A, Something had to be lifted, or concrete had to be poured, and a, a crane had a, a problem. And you know, it was it was very detailed the way that it was portrayed. But while the construction was going on in the background, they showed this sort of very serene sort of hangar or warehouse, which was I read to believe to be part of the same complex, uh, where you know, wonderful sort of like you know, white surgical restoration was going on, and and uh, the, the all the artifacts were being brought in and sort of checked in and laser scanned and uh, documented and given sort of like, uh, you know, barcodes and everything for posterity. And that was the documentary. So, I mean, is is that complete propaganda, do you think?
2: Yes. And do you really want to be the devil's advocate? I don't. Um, No, it's just hogwash. And if you look at those pictures of the museum, it's the long, the long one, and you can see cranes and whatever. And if you look up close, I mean, they're still pouring rebar outside, the cement on top of the rebar. Like, the thing isn't even closed. Now, because I saw them go through all this with the Library of Alexandria, 12 years, and they, it was also 12 years for the uh, King Tut DNA, there was a Japanese team, and they fired them, and then there was Scott Woodward from Brigham Young University, and no, oh, they were just about to drill into the tooth of King Tut, and no, oh, security alert, and National Geographic was there shut them down, and decided to do their own DNA stuff. And I was studying archaeology at the graduate level at that time. And they were using the Y, the X, the y chromosome. It should be the X chromosome that they're using for mitochondrial DNA, MTD DNA, you know, and then following the matrilineal line. And even during yeah. the dynasties, the new pharaoh had to marry the daughter of the pharaoh before him, So it went through the matrilineal line. But anyway, so it's all hogwash. No way. If the bill, I mean, come on, if you're on a construction site and you're building a house, are you going to bring your grand piano when the house has holes in it and it's still not complete? No. You're not going to bring your good stuff to the house before it's finished because you can't secure it.
4: Right? Wow. No, no, I mean, it's just, it's just, you know, biggest belief. I mean, is it, is it just uh, money spinning? Is it, is it, I mean, to me, what comes to mind is it, it retains the secret. You know, this barrage of uh, this illusion that, you know, the history in ancient Egypt only dates back 6,000 years. And, you know, we have to believe what Zawi Hawass says and uh, Mark Lehner and other people portray on TV. And in the meantime, you know, if you're about to drill into some to to do a DNA test and then you have a security alert, then, oh, guess what? Next time, next month when we reset it, you'll have to get all your licenses again and pay all your fees again is that what it's about yep
2: and then you know all of the shenanigans and you know how many permits how many expeditions i was candidate for a lot of these expeditions with joseph shore and boris Syed and chelsea floor and i was privileged to all the emails back and forth and this whole tomb of osiris and the chambers underneath the sphinx and you know and i just watch i mean the thing is is that i mean i, I don't know if you know ole damagard's work but you know he's always talking about the patterns in the false flag events and they do the same thing and they leave you cues, clues you know and i've been watching all this stuff go down in egypt going what are they talking about like it's lies and we know that tv is programming we know that you know zahi was paid off you know by the the americans to you know tell lies about things and scream at everybody and. You know, he really is very gruff, and and he's another story now. I mean, you know, you ask, is he gone? Some people say, yeah, 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 he's gone. Other people say, no, he never left. Other people say, well, he's half in and half out. Ask three people, get three answers. So it is absolute propaganda, misinformation, fancy talk, and a fancy show, you know, that is not telling you the truth, and it's not helping you piece the story together about what really went on. But they published a story about the fire, right? And there's no way they had a fire in there. I mean, the thing is, is that I've got, you know, kind of a, sorry, but a bullshit, you know, sensor inside me, you know, that when something's wrong, I'm like, come on. Like, I just get this signal. And that's part of, you know, how I started investigating things in Egypt in a different way, was because they'd say things, you know, like it was all about war and, you know Ramsey's cutting the hands there's a pile of hands at karnak you know where he cut off the hands of his enemies and then you're in the valley of the kings looking at him having to face all his enemies like it's it's just it's 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 so corrupt it's so disgusting it's so disrespected now that's the one hand the other hand is that there's still something left from the ancient past that we can see right and i used to lament that Things were outside of Egypt, Nefertiti, the real Rosetta Stone. They were going to put a capstone on the Great Pyramid, but they never figured out how to take that other thing down. You know, on uh, well, the one that New the Earth guy Eve. threw down
4: in one night, yeah. No, but that wasn't
1: a real. Pardon?
4: Oh, no, was I, I was, just, <laughs> I was just, uh, just using a little bit of British sarcasm there where they couldn't work out how to take the tripod down when one guy one night managed to throw it down yeah yeah about a month ago yeah yeah yeah. but the thing is is that
2: it was a story and i was living in egypt at the time and going to hakim's house every day right and you know and they were saying they were going to bring it they were going to bring it they, they had booked a, uh, a plane to bring the rosetta the real rosetta stone from england robert Baval was involved in that you know and then, then and the the day before i guess it was new year's eve day they printed in the paper no not going to do it changed our minds Oh really? Okay, right. But okay, they, they they and then all people say oh did you see they made a new discovery in Egypt? They're never new. They discover it and then and, and 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 how many times did I see Zahi? You know people would give him their research and they wanted to do this thing and he'd say yes 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 give me your stuff give me your stuff give me your stuff, and then he'd shut right. them down and two years later he'd come out with it like it was his discovery over and wow. over. Wow.
1: I mean I was coming up on a break. Calendar coming up on a break. Sorry, Dr. Carmen. I just hate to stop you when you're on a roll, but we're at break time. And you're on the other side of midnight. We're uh, having a a very lively conversation with Dr. Carmen. And this is Kinthea together with Timothy Saunders. And the show tonight is Decapitation of the Great Pyramids. And we'll catch you on the other side of midnight.
0: Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Richard C. Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight. And our guest tonight is Dr. Carmen Bolter. And the theme is the decapitation of the Great Pyramid. And we're listening to the greatest heist on this planet that's ever been recorded. And I just like amazed Dr. Carmen. You, you mentioned that uh, Zahi Huas is not um, actively um, uh, in charge, but behind the scenes, is, do you think who do you think is behind this heist? Where is this? Where is all these stolen artifacts going? Where are they going?
2: Well, like I said, I saw one, and it's in the pictures. It says Roma. So they're probably selling it to various museums. Who knows? But they're definitely shipping them out of there. They're packing them up and shipping them out. And they're telling everybody they're going to the new museum. But why, why does it say Rome on it? Uh, okay. Zahi trained, quote, unquote, his kids. huh. So he had a lot of underlings and people doing practica and whatnot, you know, getting their various degrees. But he ruled with an iron fist. I mean, I got stories about the dean of, you know, the, the faculty of archaeology at Cairo University, because I was going to do my PhD in Egyptology through the University of Calgary. And this, this man had uh, offered and confirmed to be my supervisor, and um, Izahi found out that they were doing uh, something at Hawara, which I was involved in later, uh, in another complete capacity and when he found out that they were taking measurements and the the men from the the head of the national research institute and the dean of the faculty of archaeology this team thought that they were dealing with legitimate people but zahi wasn't involved and he came along and picked this sent somebody to pick him up by the scruff of the neck and take him to the airport and tell him that if he ever set foot in egypt again it would be the death penalty and they shut the whole Oh my thing. gosh They took the dean of the Faculty of Archaeology and put him in jail. And when he came out, he was an adjunct professor. And I know this guy. And he, I mean, and the other one, I won't mention names, but it's in that article um, from the National Research Institute. And I sat in his office. I got a picture of me with him. And, And they just shut this thing down so fast. And that's because if Zahi didn't know about it, and if he wasn't credited with it. Then it didn't. It was a no go. So even the uh, the golden mummies, this guy, you know, found them, studied for years, was doing the excavation, and Zahi came along and went, "Look what I found." So that was. The oh motor, my gosh. That's the most. Doesn't operative. the
1: rest of the world see what he's doing? I mean, well, half
2: of the world see what's going on in government? Come on, we're looking at this corruption. And this inability to change it, I mean, this is patriarchy everywhere on the planet, hurting people, filling their own pockets, hurting everybody else, and not respecting humanity, generally. Okay, so back to Zahi. So I know somebody who was on one of his trips, and the trip was something like $8,500 for two weeks, and then they had... Ten minute twenty, I think, different things where you could go in and it was five hundred US dollars for each ten minutes. Oh my so he, gosh. Yeah, so <laughs> at the end of that, what's that? Another ten thousand. So eighteen thousand dollars to go to Egypt with Zahi for two weeks. <laughs> and he went for into, him. To- he has access to the keys for the bent pyramid at Dashur to the step pyramid, which actually is a tomb, because it's flat-topped and has got the the step sides. Um, The so-called tomb of Hatchetsit, where you get lowered down in a harness, you know, rock-climbing kind of harness, and it's dark in there, and you don't see. And then he's pontificating about how Hatchetsit was obese. It's like, uh, how many ways can you insult us? You know, and it goes on like that. Does
4: we not have a mirror? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right.
2: the, the the tomb of sentiment, you know, and it goes on like that. I saw the list, you know, because because they weren't going some places like Abu Ghraib, where the crystal altar is, and she wanted to come with me. And so for the taxi and the expedition and the, you know integrating her into my group and everything, I charged her thirty dollars. You know, was she's paying five hundred, and that was for the day. Wow. So she, you know, it's like it's just it's highway robbery, but no one can get those
1: keys except Zahi. And so he how much money if he had twenty people or whatever would he have made? So is the government like the government is like totally behind him. I mean, obviously. I mean, how could he Well he, he is the
2: position? government how about this? He actually had thirteen lawsuits against
1: him and
2: he gave an artifact to each of the judges so they wouldn't prosecute him. He's just giving the artifacts away. To the judges. Oh, my. I mean, it's Uh, disgusting. And the thing is, you know, like like I go through all this that I don't want to get on the radio. Never mind, you know, I'm going to stop talking and, you know, retire and forget all this nonsense. You know, and I heard something the day before the interview here that if you're going to whistleblow, you might as well tell the whole story instead of because if you're talking a little bit, they're still going to come and notice you. So say what you have to say. So, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to say negative things, but I mean, the the it's terrible and and listening to these scripted messages that the guides they have to you know the the guide training is memorization of scripts right Uh and they don't even go to the temples. so we had a guide on this trip who was a silent guide who you know like after all these years of me going and leading tours for 23 years they give Uh me a guide Who just graduated, who'd never been to any of the temples. I mean, silent guide, I'm the guide, but you know, you have to have a proper Egyptologist. And he had Mm -hmm. never been anywhere. Oh my gosh. I mean, come on already. (laughs) And you can do your guide training without going to the temples and you just memorize Ramses this and that. And you'd think Ramses was the only, I know there was more than one Ramses, but you'd think he was the only Pharaoh and no one else counts. Naughton was crazy and he was deformed and tut died of a hair he was he died of malaria and he had a club foot and a hair left. Well, we're just applying medical models to try to find anomalies to make stories up about some gorgeous, fantastic pharaoh. It's just it's just it's it's it's, it's just terrible. Sorry
1: to say. I, I'm just so dumbfounded how this is all happening in the open. Like, like these blatantly are doing this, and the world is, like, just quietly sitting by and not oh, yeah. caring.
2: I know. I, well, they don't know how to care, and they don't know how to evaluate what we're talking about here. But, you know, like, the, the other thing is that, okay, I'm on a group, and people want to come with me and because they've seen the pyramid code. And, you know, so then they start. Oh, what about the second Sphinx? I'm like, what do you mean? You Because know, I I read this stuff. I know somebody's trying to say there's a second Sphinx. Well, no, 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 no. I read this article and there's this, you know, these lines that are being drawn on the plateau. I'm like, has the guy ever been to Egypt? You know how many people come up with these cockamamie theories and they never set foot on the plateau? Amazing. Right? But why do you need a second Sphinx? Well, this one guy on the trip was saying, you know, well you know like everything's gates everywhere in the world you see gates you see two i go where and don't tell me you're trying to compare the giza plateau to another place in the world like (laughs) talking to here i've been to these places right right that's not what it is i mean we have to have some kind of theoretical basis so in the pyramid code what does hakeem say it's not fair to deny what you can see and touch with your own hand and so you know we speculate but look I mean, does this look like it was made with chisels or does it look like it was made with a diamond drill? You know, like mm-hmm. y- you look and see. I mean, like they're telling you that it's primitive when it isn't. Okay. So mm-hmm. everybody's mm-hmm. going on second sphinx, second sphinx, second sphinx. Where? Where is it? Where would it be? It would have to be the same height. It would have to be some kind of parallel structure. But why do you need it? If the Sphinx is actually a processional marker connected to the constellation of Leo... And and people say, well, it's got the wrong head. It's disproportionate. It's not trying to be a lion. It's trying to be Leo. (laughs) It's the only constellation that actually looks like the shape of the constellation. Mm -hmm. You know, and then everybody's going on about how it's 10,500 BC. Well, if that's when the flood happened, they're not building the plateau during the flood. Right. If it's a processional marker, then you've got to add 26,000 years to that. And maybe 26,000 more, okay? Right. So now right. we've got a processional marker that at Equinox, the sun rises right on the Sphinx's of space. And how many times have I stood there, right there, at Equinox and watched the sun rise? In fact, I also climbed the third pyramid during an eclipse. And mm-hmm. right when the sun came up, the eclipse happened. It was just you know, purple angel in the sky. It was really something. But the point is, is that you can see the moving of the planet if you're standing there at the markers why would you need two? It doesn't make sense. If you're looking at, you know, a theoretical position about what it's for, where does the other one get to be? Well, if it's crooked and it's beside the 14 degrees and it would be on, where, where is it? Oh, well, it's just buried and they would just have to excavate, you know, a few feet. Well, then the head of it's too low. You know, like, but the the reason I'm a little uptight, you know, because, and then the next day, somebody was asked the same question. I was asked the same question four times. It's like, oh my okay, God! You don't have to believe me, okay? But this is what I've come to think. And if you want to believe that there's a second Sphinx, you go find it and explain why right. it's there. Right. You know.
1: Well, you important.
2: know. Go ahead. Mm-hmm.
1: No, will you touch on on the uh, the timeline? And it, what you're saying makes sense, even the fifty thousand years ago, because. The Sphinx physically is in a lower plane, you know. I mean, if there were floodwaters, it had to have been built way before. Exactly. And the
2: other thing is that they call it the Giza Plateau. Well, if you've been there, there's nothing flat about it. There's absolutely Mm -hmm. nothing flat about it. But that's the whole thing. They give us a name that makes us think everything's even. And then it goes on, you know, but the, the point of the matter is, is that they're keeping the real story under wraps. Zahi doesn't mind changing his mind and lying about stuff and then changing his mind. And we've seen this behavior in other politicians, where they say one thing and then say something else and then say they never said it. Like well, that
4: was prerequisite of being a politician.
2: <laughs> well, exactly. And this is you know, narcissism on steroids. That's giving everybody the idea, selfies and all that stuff, that everybody can be a rock star and they can take measurements and they can change Egyptology when they're going to end up seeing the inside of an Egyptian jail, you know, and, and don't think they're not hauling people off. I mean, they took Hakeem with our permit off to the police station.
1: Right. Keith is typing in a message here. I'd like to read on his behalf. He says, and says that the Sphinx is looking at the celestial launch site, but they say the structure in front of the Sphinx is a temple, but it has no roof for a temple.
2: Is that a question?
1: Uh, I think it's a statement from Keith.
2: Well, there's two temples. Typing in front of more. There's two temples in front of the Sphinx. One is every. Stru- pardon?
1: He, he, he typed in everything they find is defined as a temple.
2: Well, I not necessarily to the east of the pyramids. To the east of every pyramid, there was a temple.
3: Mm-hmm. And to the
2: east of the Sphinx is the Valley Temple. Is Hakim used to always say that the Osirian Stonehenge and the Valley Temple had this had similar construction, and I'm going to say that it's similar also to uh, South America. and Mm -hmm. and all that you know where it's i call it yeasted stone where and joseph davidovich talks about the poured stone geopolymers and how they they had kind of like a yeasted kind of thing where they would expand as they cured which is what would make the ability to have different cuts in them because they were very soft and then they hardened Mm
3: -hmm. and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of
2: documentation on that i'm not just saying that without having deeply looked into the Sphinx temple they always say that the cavity around the Sphinx, you know, they took the stones and made the Sphinx temple. But to me, that's the most sacred place of them all. And I looked and looked and looked for that for 10 years because it was connected to one of my past life mm-hmm. memories. And, you know, you're getting warm, you're getting cold. And whether there was a roof on it or not, I'm pretty sure there was a roof on it at, at the time. Uh-huh. But I, like a lot of the things that I find my hypothesis, my question, my research question, often from my past lives. And then I try to ground it in something real. And so you can get your question anywhere, but you right. know, do you have something substantial, you know, to back it up to then?
1: Um, yeah, to then make sense of it. So well, what no, comes? Go ahead. Go ahead. No. Well, what comes into my awareness, and and as you're mentioning your past life, is that modern day man seems to think that we're the most evolved, and yet there are all kinds of artifacts around the world demonstrating that there were civilizations, really, really ancient, ancient, ancient civilizations before we think of civilization that were far advanced from where we are. And we're looking back and trying to superimpose our own limited filters on what we're seeing on the past and and making such a terrible mess of it. I mean, we've de-evolved, not evolved. In a well, certain and, way, yeah
2: and that's the point of the pyramid code. It's also to look at uh, a larger timeline, longer timeline mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. back. And okay, think of it now. if the grid went down, we're all sitting here with our screens uh, you know, and our handheld devices and our smart everything. Well, if the grid goes down, you know what are you gonna do in a cold country? You're gonna walk around, go find a cave, light a fire. It doesn't mean we're stupid. It means the grid went down and we can't use our stuff anymore.
1: Right.
2: You know, like we we, we make up all this stuff about cavemen dragging women around by their hair and all this stuff. But it's just the propaganda that, that, you know, school tells you what to think, not how to think. You know, the government, Mm -hmm. everything, all these things are giving you the official story and you're not supposed to question it. And Mm -hmm. so... You know, by not having critical thinking and all the vaccinations and all the, you know, forced tests and whatnot, you know, kids aren't getting educated, they're getting propaganda. And so that's been imposed by Egypt as well. And when you think that there's some American link to money and the story being restricted and Zahi getting paid off to so whatever, and uh, Timothy mentioned Mark Laner, Well, he was involved with the uh, ARE, the Edgar Casey Foundation, Association for Research and Enlightenment. And he was palling around with Hancock and Beauvau, and Zahi didn't like that. And he said, if you give them up and you stop working with them, I will make you the second most famous archaeologist, and you can have that dig over there, the Pyramid Builders dig. And oh, my I, goodness. I, I had a place over there. We called it the Hall of Records Retreat Center, my my partner and I. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was 12 bedrooms and, you know, and had a roof and, you know, the two-story apartment. And I could see by by zooming in on my camera, the Pyramid Builders dig. And I could also go riding horses around over there. And so, you know, they make up stuff at the so-called Pyramid Builders dig. But anyway, Mark Lehner was in order. He was made famous. and, And that was it, to stop working with them and stop working on alternatives. And it worked. Okay. So there's something underneath each of these stories, you know, that each of these expeditions that got
4: shut down and all of that.
2: Timothy, you're awfully quiet.
4: I am. Well, you, you guys are talking a lot, so I'm just listening.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: I mean, there's, there's so much to talk about, but there's also so much interesting, so many interesting subjects to listen to. So, yeah, I mean, I think going back sort of chronologically, when, when Mark Lena was around, I think that was the time when I realized that, that was a bad taste in my mouth, and I, I didn't want to follow that direction anymore. I didn't like his National Geographic sort of uh, bullshit. Uh, versions of ancient history, and uh, I, I I was an avid reader of anything I could find about ancient Egypt, um, every, as long as I can remember, in my art classes at school, I mean, this has going back a long time, I used to paint sort of ancient Egyptian scenes and sort of, you know, try and draw hieroglyphics, and then obviously I had no idea, so I need to go and find a book, and I, I couldn't find one, so I'd order one, and then, you know, it, it just sort of developed an interest and a passion. So for me, I'd already done quite a lot of reading by the time I was uh, actually visited uh, Cairo uh, for the first time. I think I was about 14 years old then. Um, so I'm not saying I know, because I don't know. I, I know what I know, but I know for sure that my bullshit radar was going off like crazy when Zawi Huas was talking or when Mark Lainer was talking. And, uh, you know, I, I, I know the directions that I feel far more, more happy to follow. And, uh, your work being, being, one I am very happy to follow as well. So, um, I mean, I I think that what we're looking at really is, is this heist. It's a very good word, Kintia. um, Mm -hmm. is really just another example. In fact, it's a kingpin of the sort of microcosm macrocosm of where we are on the planet these days. I mean, you know, we all, you know, of course I'm not surprised this is going on because, everything else is going on. You know, you, you have to watch CNN for five seconds and you think, my God, you know, it's, what is this? And you look on another news channel and you see a completely different perspective and, and there are very, very few independent news channels anymore that you, you can actually watch and, uh, you know, obtain some, some, some reflection of the truth. So I, I personally gave up watching mainstream media about 15 years ago, I guess and I'm very selective what I put in my brain, what I allow in my brain, what I listen to, what I watch. And uh, I think the same thing is very, very important to do with when studying ancient history, because, you know, the mainstream is is just a farce. It's just a a myth. It's something to sort of seal off our imagination. I mean, even, you know, digressing slightly, Dan Brown going mainstream with with, uh, The Da Vinci Code. I mean, I read so many books, and it was absolutely my passion, my hobby to follow you know, uh, sort of like trail of um, the Templars and the Holy Grail and you know, various other subjects and so on. And there are some very, very interesting, you know, examples of literature and people have, a many people have some very convincing theories. And, but somehow by coming into mainstream media and sort of Hollywood, it was completely, you know, blatted out the horizon. And, uh, I had the feeling that the carpet was pulled from beneath my feet and I just lost interest in the whole direction because suddenly everybody was, you know, brainwashed and talking the same the same sort of uh, bullshit story. So I think the same thing is true of, of most of what goes on in ancient Egypt and that's why I think, you know, things like the Pyramid Code and I think there's some other, other individuals that have had some very interesting theories which I hope we can get into a little bit tonight. So my, my vote would be to... Uh, branch into some of, you know, embellishing some of the fascinating facts about the ancient real story as opposed to uh, continuing with the, you know, underlining Zawi Hawass and his friends. That would be my vote.
2: Okay, let's do it. And and, um, you're not unlike most of the people who come with me to Egypt who have a sensibility about it at the cellular level uh the 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 the, you know following the templars and all of that you know like that that is a thread uh that makes perfect sense at the soul level and pretty much everything on mainstream is soulless and lies and we're it dumbs us down so that we don't question and if we are questioning and we are connecting ourselves to the situation and the story then we've really got something
4: Dr. Carmen, maybe a good, because we have a break coming up in around five minutes, shall we just visit this, uh, explain to the listeners the the differences between the matriarchal and patriarchal sort of uh, way of life? And some of your observations are very interesting about, you know, where uh, Egyptian um, art is showing like sort of one foot leading or or, a left or a right side, meaning, meaning, you know, Anyway, I, I don't want to take the, do it for you, so I think you can explain it far better than I can. But, I mean, the way that sort of a woman's hand is wrapped around the, the back of a man, all of these things have a great meaning, which maybe a lot of people are missing.
2: Yes, and, and we're not going to do it in four or five minutes. Uh, but I'm the, sure. <laughs> the point is that matri- matriarchy isn't the opposite of patriarchy where women are controlling men. The idea of hierarchy, power over blood from death instead of blood from life is, is, is the difference. Um, in menstrual blood, the highest form of DNA. In the ancient times, the women would get together when they were menstruating. They would In their moon time, they would have a collective dream. They would collect their menstrual blood and then they would redistribute it on the fields. And it wasn't considered yucky. It was considered holy. And then when the patriarchs took over, they needed blood, so they'd do a sacrificial lamb, and they'd kill something for blood. Well, blood from death is not the same as blood from life. And now we're living in a patriarchal bloodbath where they lopped off the sacred feminine in the Bible, and Mary Magdalene's a prostitute. But holy prostitutes, sacred prostitutes, was a, was a good idea in, in Babylon and all of that. So, I mean, I don't I don't know how much we can say before the break but this is fundamentally if we're going to explain what's wrong with our culture and what's needed to restore the planet it's it's the matriarchal balance matriarchy is a balance between the masculine and the feminine i say and i've been saying this for decades i say we're going to come to see this last six thousand five six thousand years as a patriarchal hiccup and the agenda of the patriarchy has been to erase evidence of everything other than itself.
4: Well, that, that's also evident by, even, even in, in the ancient history, which is Egyptian history, which, which is shared with us, in that um, Hatshepsut was uh, her, her, her statues, the feminine. Uh, she, she was a queen, right? Is that right?
2: She was a pharaoh and a queen.
4: A pharaoh and a queen, exactly. But, but because she was a pharaoh, it was thought that that was covered up at certain points. It wasn't acceptable information. So her statues were gathered together and thrown into a pit. This is the, one, the ones you were mentioning earlier, I believe. And sort of yeah. her existence was covered up because it wasn't acceptable in a patriarchal society.
2: Yes, and if she had been accepted, she would have been known as the most prolific builder and bringer of culture with her expeditions to the land of Punt, bringing myrrh trees and all frankincense and precious jewels and, you know, exotic animals and everything from South in, in Africa, et cetera. I mean, she was, she, well, she's one of my favorite characters in ancient history.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: Well, there have been a number of uh, feminine uh, obviously, deities in ancient Egypt, and we can talk about those later. But, I mean, for example, pharaohs, for example, um, just just thinking of the name Nefertiti, excuse me. Where, where does Nefertiti fit into this? I mean, when I've seen this, this bust of her head, I mean, it's, she has an unbelievably modern look. She looks incredibly beautiful, incredibly intelligent. The sculpture is fantastic, the detailing. You know, you, she could be somebody walking down the street in New York or London or, or wherever today in terms of their features. Well,
2: and when you see uh, replicas or artifacts from Amarna, um, which is where she would have lived with Akhenaten and Tut, that's where Tut came from, um, it looks incredibly modern. It's just fantastically gorgeous stuff. So Akhenaten would have been the great, great, great Grandson of Hatchet's. I mean, it was still the 18th dynasty. And I think that the real spirituality was percolating up.
1: Um, And then, uh, great time. Okay. Great time. (laughs) So hold that thought. We'll come back to that. You're on the other side of midnight. Richard C. Hogan's the other side of midnight. And this is Kintia and Timothy Saunders filling in for Richard. And our guest tonight is Dr. Carmen Bolter. The show is Decapitation of the Great Pyramid. 19.5
0: to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the a broadcast that provide you with the most interesting conversation available talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought the other side of midnight.com
1: Other Side of Midnight. To uh, find the show page, click uh, on the other side of midnight.com. The show is called Decapitation of the Great Pyramid, and Timothy Saunders is co hosting with myself, Kintia, and our guest tonight is Dr. Carmen Bolter. And Dr. Carmen, we're having a really interesting conversation about the matriarchy, a matriarchal society versus the patriarchy, and I really appreciating the distinction that you're making that it's not that we're trying to take over it's not yeah, yeah. go please continue
2: okay so uh, basically it has to do with the the two sides of the brain being fully operational and the corpus callosum being an interactivity between the two sides of the brain and so uh, my master's research included that in terms of, okay, so left, left brain is the right side of the body, it's the masculine side, and basically it's reading, writing, arithmetic, if you can't see it, it's not there, and nothing symbolic, nothing dreamlike. And I'd just like to give an example here that they studied the brain capacity of sex offenders in jail. And uh, those that were, you know, the diddling little girls, they were basically completely uh, right brain deficient, left side of the body, feminine consciousness. And so it's almost like they were stealing the balance that was lacking from little girls. Oh, uh, Yeah, yeah. I find that completely fascinating. What and interesting. so we need a balance. And, okay, so at every Egyptian temple, At the the beginning, at the very entrance of it, if you look up, you'll see a winged disc, and that's the sun and the wings. Uh, And the idea was that the lower self had to surrender to the higher self to do the holy work in the temple. Even if you were, you know, part of the ordinary populace, you could go into the first hypostyle hall. But the more high-level initiations that initiates had, had, the more they could go and progress further and do the real spiritual work. And so. We don't think like that. Everything's ego, me, mine, power over, and that's the distortion. I mean, if you lop off the sacred feminine and you've got the patriarchal aspect running wild, you have not having to care about other lives, not having to care about the future, you know, ruining the planet, using all the resources, we only live once. And, you know, these things have been shaped over time. In 323 AD, Emperor Constantine made reincarnation illegal. And so you only live once. This is how this works. But the the irony of it was if they caught on that you were interested in reincarnation, they'd kill you, (laughs) which I think. (laughs) So we'll show you. I mean, if you believe in reincarnation, try this and come back if you can. (laughs) Right. And we did. (laughs) And we did. (laughs) Exactly. And so, but it's a failed experiment as far as I can tell. And um, so, but, but the interaction of the two sides of the brain, we need the symbolic, we need dream time, you know, mysteries, the unseen, and that sort of thing to make sense of a whole life. So, men have masculine and feminine within them, but in, you know, certainly in the 50s, the men lopped off the sacred feminine within themselves. And women have the sacred masculine within them we're meant to, you know, be far closer and, and more in balance with both aspects. But really, it's representing the two sides of the brain, okay? Mm-hmm. And the interaction between the two sides is where the, the creativity comes from. So imagine looking at a scarab, actually, which is the representation. The front front lobe is the front of the scarab, and the division is the two sides of the brain. So if you start out in the left brain with a question... And somehow you go into some kind of trance that brings you into the other side of your brain for um, incubation. Then comes illumination, and then you transfer back into the other side of the brain for verification. So you can't really process anything without going between the two sides of the brain. And so there's this fantastic um, crown, if you will. I mean, there's all these gold devices that we're working with energy which is another whole conversation. But this one has uh, a a serpentine shape, which looks like a snake, I suppose, going across the two sides of the brain, the two hemispheres of the brain. So it goes up and over the head with the serpentine. And I just think that's brilliant because if your brain wasn't, you could just put this crown on, go inside one of these gold Faraday cages and charge up the energy and get the two sides of your brain working differently. I mean, I think they work that way.
1: That is that's
2: ingenious. just the balancing. The balancing that's, just, mm-hmm. the, that's right. And so it, everything now on the planet is out of balance. Uh, right. And it's all low-level, ego-driven. Uh, mm-hmm. we're in, they, they had to invent a new word, post-truth, um, which got into the dictionary two years ago. Because we're in a post-truth era. If you don't get caught, it's not wrong. But that's not how it works. Okay, mm-hmm. And so the Egyptians understood this really, really well, and <clears throat> they exemplified it. And that's, as you said it before, Kinthea, we're looking through patriarchal lenses at them. Um, but you couldn't get away with anything, even in the Valley mm-hmm. of the Kings. You know, like if you mm-hmm. murdered all these different people, you had to face your enemies in the, in, in the afterlife,
1: mm-hmm. right. in the
2: in-between life. And so matriarchy is about balance. It's also about respect, and it's also about holistic. You you include everything.
1: You, you know, one author that I really have appreciated, Dr. Leonard Shlain, wrote a book, The Alphabet and the Goddess, and um, goes into this thing about the different ways that the brain perceives. That when we brought in reading, we started shifting from the left brain to right, from the right brain to left brain. A really fascinating read.
2: Uh, Dr. Yes, and, and, and that is appreciating where we've come from. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well and and even as high level initiates, when I mean, we didn't talk per se. We were sending each other movies, sending each other pictures and chirping for the mood. You know, almost like birds. Um, and so this this understanding of telepathy and, and, and how to communicate in a deeper way. Um, really was that that kind of fully awake consciousness. That's the thing. And what's the last line in the Pyramid Code? How would our society change if consciousness was the highest value instead of profit?
4: Dr. Carmen, may I digress slightly in an Egyptian direction? We're just talking about the the way that people are. It's not a question of how people are being. I mean, for example, let's, let's look at the the judgment, the early judgment where Anubis is standing there and the scales are out and the heart is being weighed, the heart of the, of the person who's passed away is being weighed uh, against the feather, the feather of life. And if the heart is light, then the idea is they will go on to, um, I, I believe, to, to, to another life and built, is it, they'll go on to another life. But when, it, when uh, a later interpretation of that was that certain... Uh, richer people could actually pay uh, for, I think there were these like little sort of like uh, sculptural dummies that could be hung on that balance, that same balance, to basically um, make the, as far as I understand it, is to make the, the heart side relatively lighter by adding weight to the, the feather of life side. So in other words, you could pay your way to make your heart lighter. Was was this the sort of time when do you think the, matriarchal and sort of patriarchal time is changing
2: okay <clears throat> first of all uh the feather of truth comes off the truth off sorry Mott's headdress
4: yeah.
2: and th- and i just said we, we we're now in a post-truth era but this this thing that you've just described the ceremony of the weighing of the hearts was actually to teach yes. the populace to be light of heart Okay. And it's the Amun priesthood that is the period of darkness of the five cycles of Egyptian um, years and days and uh, larger cycles. So hepper was the scarab, which is the balance of the two sides of the brain. Um, yes. And that was the dawn. And then we go all the way around to the darkness, Amun, and we still say Amen. And the Amun priesthood or who took down uh, Amarna, and that's another big story. But yes. the, the, the Shapti dolls were what you could buy from the Amun priesthood. And then in later drawings of the Ceremony of the Weighing of the Hearts, you see Horus standing with his hand on one side of the scale to hold That's the scale, what I was thinking. To,
5: excuse it, me, to yes. make it
2: look like you wouldn't put the Shapti dolls on the feather. You'd uh, pay, pay Horus or somebody who represented Horus to hold the scale to say, yeah, you're good. Which is similar <laughs> to going to confession. The church, the, the Catholic Church, going you go to confession, and there's even been studies done on that where if you can confess, then you can do go out and do another crime, and all you have to do is confess. So <laughs> relationships that don't have confession actually have less crime because you can't just go and say, okay, uh, I'll do you know five Hail Marys. Um, and, and this is I was watching a show called Lucifer. And uh, and instead of saying, say five Hail Marys, he says, drink five Bloody Marys, (laughs) 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 which is blasphemy. But anyway, I thought it was funny because this is the thing that you're supposed to do to just get rid of that. Anyway, so what they they didn't want you on the other side, it wasn't so much going to another incarnation yet. It was being between lives. And so what you see in the Valley of the Kings is the bardos, the dark, the dark spaces with all the creepy crawly and the you know reptilian kind of energies down there that if if they didn't if you could not prove that your heart was light you got stuck there with those creepy crawlies in the darkness and you couldn't go on because they didn't want you on the other side and that's Mm. what they were trying to teach the populace with this
4: lesson yeah
0: Mm.
4: so so what we're really talking about is that when when we as, as, as in general become light of heart you know, we we travel light, we're honest, we're pure, we have good intentions, we we don't let, you know, a negative thought process come into our mind and then allow it to come to our actions, for example. Then, obviously, then people can possibly uh, resonate. And then I think there's a whole very interesting subject to talk about with um, the resonance of the pyramids and the different monuments in ancient Egypt in, in the band of peace uh, I think your opening of uh, the pyramid code is, is it? Uh, it is Abu rawash which is in itself a fantastic um, site. I've never been to. I'd love to go there. But um, to me, that that looks like that. That's that's an obvious no-brainer that the pyramids are older than uh, six thousand years because here is here is what looks to be a you know a much older pyramid without. A considerable amount of it, the body above the uh, the plateau, where, the, where the, it looks like the shaft is there, as in the Great Pyramid. And this, to me, looks to be a far older uh, monument, or maybe not older monument, than, obviously older than 6,000 years, but it may not be older than the Great Pyramid, for example, or the Second Pyramid. But certainly, it seems to be a very ancient site, uh, but almost certainly much older than 6,000 years. Uh, have you Have you any um sort of done any data with alignments of sort of star sighting through the the shaft or is, is there any anything you can um augment my my brutal introduction to that story with
2: yeah absolutely okay two things one is if you put your back to the band of peace and look toward Alexandria, it's almost certain that that would have been underwater. And that was Hakim's <clears throat> conviction as well. And so the mouth of the Nile would have been right there. <clears throat> so there was a time, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, where there wasn't a delta and there wasn't an Alexandria. So it seems, and the, and the old riverbed is there, as is explained quite clearly in the Pyramid Code. So the, that would have been the north part of the Band piece, And there's a vortex in there. Like I've walked down there several times where it's just incredibly strong. And, you know, one time I forgot and it was just like bouncing my body around because it's just a precise spot. So there's energetics in all the pyramids for sure. Well, that I
4: felt myself in, in the one I've been into. Yes, it's incredible.
2: And they're all different. So they're almost like I think of a flute and different notes being played. And so each of the chambers is in a different position. But Dr. Samos Manigic, who's in charge of the Bosnian Pyramid Project, you know, has has identified, okay, maybe I should ask you, how many pyramids do you think he's identified on the
4: planet now, the old ones?
2: No, I don't know.
4: I I would say, I don't know, I I honestly don't know, but I'm I'm going to say guess number 62. Oh, there's that many just almost around the Giza Plateau, but no. I thought you meant unknown ones, I thought.
2: 80,000. 80,000. 80,000. Wow. 80, okay. So there is an established technology for straight-sided pyramids that were energetic machines, and they have seven characteristic features, um, et cetera. Anyway, but the point of the matter is, is that they were like different notes or chords. So you can imagine a wind harp where you change the position, rotate the wind harp to catch the wind, and then it makes different sounds. So these were like a huge machine interacting together with each other as a sound and light technology. Now, if you look at the whole band of piece from Google Earth, um, they look like a scattering of, of, of just like you just, you know, dropped a bunch of stones and they ended up in funny places. But actually, I've done several years of research in Starry Night Pro to establish yeah. which uh, star systems were connected to which pyramid and, and and which cluster of pyramids and um I have not found what Sakara is, and I can tell you what the others are um, mm. okay and so but this this is is totally profound because we're talking an expanse of twenty five miles for the band apiece i mean it's quite extensive, right. And the whole thing would have worked in coordination with hundreds of high-level initiates uh, being human divining rods, I call it,
1: you know, Mm. connecting
2: the the cosmic energy into the telluric energy and, you know, lower cells surrendering to the higher self, fields within, fields within. Like we can't even begin to perceive what this, you know, how this would have worked, but it definitely was an interaction with the humans uh, Mm. somehow that we're, we're connecting the... Earth energy, the telluric energy, almost the way neural synapses don't touch, they shoot a hormone across. So the cosmic energy can't connect with the telluric energy without the human divining rod, if you
1: will. Okay. So
2: soul cathars?
1: Say that again? Would those, would those be soul cathars?
2: I guess. That's a word. Uh, I'm thinking right. cathars.
1: Cat- and think most of oh, us... Okay.
2: Who, most. Well, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the cathars. Mm-hmm. France. And many, see, many of us inc- incarnated in soul groups and, and came with this advanced knowledge because we mm-hmm. practiced it in other incarnations and, and mm-hmm. stayed together as soul groups. And that's what I think these kinds of conversations are, you know, juicy and what they are because we know, we already know, and we're talking
1: mm-hmm. to people. Who and we're having a reunion. <laughs> well, I call it. Right I
2: call, here. I call them cosmic appointments.
1: Mm-hmm. Cosmic Appointment. Okay,
2: so Sirius would have been uh, Abu Rauch. Uh, Giza, which has been scientifically proven now. Robert Boval is 10 minutes down the road from me here in Spain, and he gave me the article that was showing through archaeoastronomy unequivocally that Giza is connected to Orion. And then Abu Sir is next, which would be the Pleiades, which is in the Pyramid Code. Saqqara, I don't know. And then <clears throat> Dashur would have been Cygnus. Now, we have a, a researcher who wants everything to be Cygnus because Cygnus is in the ancient text. But anyway, this is all part of the extragalactic grid. And if you keep Cygnus is the bird, the swan. And if you go through the tail and straight out the beak and keep going along the extragalactic grid, you come back to Sirius. Now, Walter Cruttenden did a book, um, Lost Star of Myth and Time, Looking at the mythology of uh, Sirius possibly being in a binary system with our sun. And what's true is just in the same proportion as some people are single and some people are married and, and in mated relationships, so are stars. There's some stars that are single and there's some stars that are binary. And so he wasn't proving that scientifically, he was looking at the mythology. But now we've got the Binary Research Institute, and that's where CPAC, the Conference on Procession and Ancient Knowledge, that I'll be speaking at in Newport Beach, October 4th to 6th.
1: Uh, We should put that on the site. You send me the information, I'll put it on the site.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's That's a really important conference. I
1: really enjoy it. Anyway,
2: so, um, but if you... Okay, Starry Night Pro is extremely complex, the, the program, but it allows you to... Look from different perspectives. and so extra galactic grid means it's outside the galaxy, which is totally fascinating. And so you plot these different star systems and then you can run a movie back, and I ran it thirty three thousand years back and thirteen thousand years forward. And this configuration that I just mentioned never falls apart. And in my effort to find what Sakara is, I put in 40 different star systems that just blew right out because they weren't part of that system. Mm -hmm. Now, I've gone as far as to ascertain that the symbolism of Isis wearing a bird on her head, because Isis is related to Sirius and Orion is related to Osiris, Um, and if you take the bird from Cygnus and go all the way around the extragalactic grid back to Isis, the symbol of her putting a bird on her, her, her headdress being a bird actually make sense in terms of this this configuration. And it could be that Saqqara was some kind of space station, who knows what, it was the entry and the exit point, I don't know. Uh, but so far, um, I haven't come up with anything of this configuration that fits with Saqqara, which is interesting. Because none of those pyramids are functioning pyramids in the same way. They wanna say that the step is the oldest, and as Hakim says, as my colleagues say, but the step Pyramid did have grave goods in it. And it's a mastaba because it's, it's flat-topped and a step Pyramid, which is not the same thing. And so a lot of the other pyramids at Saqqara, they took the casing stones off and they looked like a pile of rubble, really. And so all of the other sites have real pyramids, okay? Real in the sense of Dr. Sam and the seven characteristic features, water underneath and all that. So, <clears throat> Yes it's a, it's a star field but it's it's how could they have known right and so one of the things that we see over Well, and over they were Yes. <laughs> well, yeah they were, they were. They were well and they were cosmic too but the the, mm. the whole ceiling of the temple of Dendero that's been cleaned but not properly interpreted yet as far as i can see um, is showing all these archetypal beings and I I think that it was just normal for them to channel, normal for them to understand cross-incarnational energies Uh, you know, we're stuck with ETs being in little spaceships because we're on our scooter, in our car roller Mm -hmm. skates you know, we think they need vehicles because we're in with vehicles but they can borrow a vehicle what's a trance channel that's an entity from another whatever, dimension incarnation, whatever Coming and borrowing the physical body of the trance channel, they use their voice, but sometimes the voice comes out differently. They sound like another entity, like Barbara Marciniak right. channeling mm-hmm. the Pleiadians, and then she's back into herself, right? And you can, and they right. literally are changing her voice because it's another mm-hmm. entity speaking. Well, this was normal for the Egyptian. Right. Okay, and, th- and that's where they got their star knowledge. The other thing is that they practiced leaving. So these out-of-body experiences, um, by location, teleportation, all the groovy right. Star Trek stuff was normal to them, and it was all about the right. transmutation of the atom. Fake right. time. Boy, that went Great time.
1: This is too exciting. This is too exciting. So we're talking about teleportation and channeling and – Ways of travel without using physical means. I love it. You're on the other side of midnight. Our guest tonight is Dr. Carmen Bolford. We'll return afterwards, and I'd like to, when we return, I'd also like to address one of the questions from a listener about Jordan's site and Timothy's items. We'll be back.
7: Membership costs nine ninety five a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
1: to the other side of midnight our guest tonight is Dr. Carmen Bolter and we're having a conversation about types of transportation that do not require physical vehicles and receiving messages from interdimensional beings and the star grid and I am so fascinated with what you're saying Dr. Carmen please continue
2: well, um, if we start to join with them and understand what they were uh, saying, then we'll understand them a lot better and join them in these cosmic ways. so um I think that the sarcophagus in the great pyramid, which of course n- none of it was ever used for as a tomb um, but but if you put your head in the right direction, all of the energy of the pyramid focuses um uh, Exactly in your pineal gland, and I think that what the ancients were doing was practicing leaving and of course it 's easy to leave the trick is to return and mm. so yeah, and so um, that's what they were doing inside the great pyramid and so and other other places as well, they did star traveling, and that 's another story I mean, I know we're kind of running out of time, but there are all these passageways on the plateau that are blocked now and ostensibly filled with garbage but I think Uh they connected to to a network of tunnels underneath the plateau and of course in that article you sent me it's you know there's all this discrepancy about whether there's even tunnels down there well of course there are Um, and that was you know I even have a picture of a temple of Isis that Zahi had paved over the top from 1910 which is a temple that's lower on a, uh, uh, beside the Sphinx, on the left side of the Sphinx, that's connected to a lot of these different uh, passageways. And so the, the earth would rotate, and these the, the square passageways would be directly in line with a star. And so in my past life memories, I see four initiate attendants and one person that would do the star travel, and their their body would collapse because they literally would leave their body, and their body would be you know cared for and nurtured while they went off. And then the idea with uh, the four attendants was they would make sure that the person came back into their body, and then they would go into isolation for 72 hours to bring. It's almost like bringing a dream back. So mm-hmm. if you have a dream journal, dream journal under your pillow, and you wake up and just commit straight to the book. Um, and you don't look out the window, then you can keep remember your dream. The minute you look out the window, you're part of this world, and it's gone. So I think that there was a real strategic way for the initiates to take care of their physical body and make sure they were back in, because if you sort of come back in, it's dangerous in terms of health and all that. Mm -hmm. And then they would bring the star knowledge back. And I think that that was a common practice, during the times on the plateau when the Nile wasn't flooding. So I think the Nile went right at the foot of the Sphinx and all along the Band of Peace. And now it's migrated eight miles to the east. Mm-hmm. And um, Did
1: sound play a big part in this? Because I've, I've heard that, you know, I haven't been there yet. I, I wish I had, but that these structures have a particular resonance like
2: well no question and that's what when i said that we were in the pyramid you know early on there in 77 and you'd hear the do 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 it's it's complete resonance like you know every notch on a zipper every tone pyramid like Dashur, the red pyramid at Dashur is particularly um evident of that with the corbel uh ceilings and three chambers in different directions so uh, and it was all about resonance, and each pyramid had its own resonance field based mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. where the passageways were, as I said, almost like notes on a flute
1: mm-hmm. and don't, don't don't those different resonances affect the different chakras differently I mean, well
2: I've... exactly but it's it's like if you look at the temples along the Nile,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know that the, they represent each represent a chakra, and I think that the initiates were tested and initiated for a different uh a, 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 a whole different psychology at each temple, so ah. the temple vices would have been for sex magic kamumbo would have been for digestion and digesting your fears and then you get all the way up to giza at the end which was the crown chakra when the initiates were trained in every way because if they weren't trained properly they could get what i call electromagneticated um, and and that that they, it could kill them so the trainings were very very specific in terms of cuz i don't think anybody understands the amount of energy that they were putting through their bodies mm-hmm. on this on the band of peace with this whole thing in sequence like the, the harmonics of the whole band of peace And so when I see reenactments of of movies from Egypt, none of them are standing straight and tall enough and that amount of energy, which is what the bands at the wrists and the ankles are, to hold the energy field. But the ones that are up on the upper arm, those are for sex magic. And most of them had to have the sex magic training, I think all, um, in order to be able to handle the energy coming through. Mm -hmm. So all this fit together. And yes, it was all about the chakras. And so their bodies... be completely open in order to be able to handle this.
4: Yes, Timothy. Now, I'm I'm just wondering, uh, one of the things I wanted to sort of move on to, but it seems we need another show, uh, is resonance. I mean, we we, we talked about resonance for the last uh, few minutes, but, I mean, there are very different ways of getting into, you know, an altered state, an altered state, perhaps uh, star travel and so on. You know, obviously there's medication and drugs, there's music, there's dance, there's space stroke architecture, and resonance. You know, resonance. All of these things can change our, our state of mind and, and you know, uh, bring us into a, a different state of being. And one of the things that occurred to me over the last uh, last few days, while just getting ready for this show, is the Great Pyramid. And there's been a lot of work already done about how the Great Pyramid has a certain scale. It's a scale model. Some people say it's a scale model of planet Earth, where if you take the uh, the square-sided circumference of the, the base of the pyramid and uh, correlate that with the circumference of the Earth, and uh, one can say that it, it's a scale... The, the Great Pyramid is like a scale model of the Earth at 1 to 43,200, now, that's a kind of a magical number in lots of ways because if you you can correlate that with like one arc, one degree, um, 60 multiplied by 360 is 21,000, um, excuse me, I need to work that out a second, 21,600, uh, which if you then multiply it by two, I think that's the formula that gets you from the, the scale of the pyramid to the size of the Earth. But What's very interesting is that that 4, 000, 1 to 43,200 scale also is, by coincidence, the 432 hertz. Some people say is a, um, a frequency which music is far more um, in keeping with sort of the human ear, with the human soul, the human mind. And I just found that a very, very interesting correlation that those two numbers should be very similar. Uh, in essence. Yes, the,
2: absolutely. That's the harmonics of it all. Yes. And even changing the resonance or the frequency of music is helping to mess us up and have us not be as cosmic. And exactly. that's also done by design. And if you play heavy metal to plants,
4: they die. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, the, I believe the other frequency the other is, is 440. I think at a certain point it was decided by some somebody. Uh, who knows, maybe it was sort of the hidden hand or whatever you want to call them, or it was just some musician, who knows, but it was changed to 440 hertz. Now, what's very interesting is, as well as one side at the base of the Great Pyramid, is 440 meters. I think it's meters. Yes, meters. So, it's, again, these two numbers, which... Seem to be, you know, one, one is sort of uh, healthy, is, is good for the soul, the other one is, is negative. 432 is, is the correct one for, you know, a balanced humanity, balanced body, balanced brain. 440 is, is the one which apparently is used in, has been used for some time, which uh, seems to sort of disrupt balance and disrupt the harmony. But uh, you've got the, to
2: remember the casing stones are missing. And so the measurements of the pyramid, you know, aren't what they used to be, and that may, you know, involve some of the interference patterns that that are going on with it. It's it not could well
4: be. We it could well be, but I think that I mean I've not measured it myself. Yes, I've visited the Great Pyramid, but I've not measured it with a tape measure myself. So, but I'm only I'm only going on what other people have, have done a lot of work on. I think it was, uh, was it Peter Tompkins, uh Graham Hancock. Yeah, I mean you name it. there's a lot of people out there who I believe have to sort of put reliable data out down um, but I mean I'm not saying it is the Egyptians knew that the dimensions would you know make make um, a disharmy by by making it four hundred forty meters uh, four hundred meters sides but what I'm trying to say is that there could be people who have interpreted this data uh, in in a way which is in a patriarchal way, which is like superficial, it, it's off-tune, it's off-balance, and uh, that's unfortunately one of the things that sort of, being, being, you know, being the ingredients of our, our less-than-harmonious existence today. So four three four three two forty-three thousand two hundred 43,200 seems a big coincidence to me.
2: Well, I would say by design. I mean, the thing well, is, if, if, if it's all an accident, then the Egyptians were misguided and infantile, which is what they try to tell us, but I think they were just the wisest of the wise. And they got their information, you know, from elders, from where, but, um, you know, the, the, the prime of Egypt was how it started, and then it deteriorated from there. So it came in to full existence in the oldest rendition. And so the more modern
4: things are the less. Uh, technological. Absolutely.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Absolutely.
4: Well, also interesting, I think, is, is the different colors, which apparently different pyramid sites have different colors. And I, I think, in your, you've mentioned yourself in the pyramid code that there are like black, floored areas in the, Giza, in the Giza plateau. And well, the and second white, pyramid is, and white floors
2: too. No, it's red, white, and black. But and that's, that's what I'm saying. That's, that's the new flag of Egypt, which I do think exactly. is actually But um, these are the colors of Atlantis, but they're also matriarchal colors. The virgin is white, the mother is red, and the crone is black. These are the triple goddess. Yes. And Hakim, our joining point, the first minute we met, was he referred to the Sphinx as she. And Mm. I was like, I always thought it was feminine. And, and he called her Tefnuti, which was the spit of the sun, which isn't an impolite thing in this sense, but how, but definitely a feminine, a feminine principle right there. So, but this is this is the matriarchal aspect of it
4: all. So, yeah. Well, Nutz, Nutz is uh, if that's a, I'm, I'm not a, an expert on hieroglyphics or, or Egyptian names, but Nutz, as far as I know, was the was the goddess of the, the universe? Wasn't the sun born out of her every morning and swallowed by her by her at sunset every day? Something along those lines? Yeah, I call her Nui. Nui. Uh, the, the milk
2: of her breast is the Milky Way. And yes. she would give birth to the sun in the morning and swallow it at night. And when you look on the ceilings, um, mostly in the Valley of the Kings, but in the ceiling of the Temple of Dendera as well, you see the phases of the sun going through which is also the cosmic cycles and, it, and and she's got her hands touching on the earth and her feet touching on the earth but she's standing inside plasma the, the, the hieroglyphic for
4: plasma mm. fascinating that there is even a hieroglyphic for plasma <laughs>
2: well that's the thing like this business that this is an a and this is a b and we have 26 letters and they have 4,000 symbols and english wasn't around then I mean, the arrogance and the, yeah, the the self-aggrandizement that goes even with thinking that hieroglyphic resembles letters is ridiculous. And even Mm -hmm. the people who wrote the books on hieroglyphic, I've met some in the, you know, I did a lot of international archaeological conferences when I was doing my graduate work. um, and, And they admitted, James
1: Allen admitted that we can't hear you carmen sure
2: and then they were pushing that through and darwin you know had problems with his own theory and they pushed that through and freud darwin and champollion were probably smoking cigars in the same speakeasy club in england you know and then that that became Mm. the rhetoric of what they were shoving down everybody's throat at school you know and so you know like there really has been a hidden hand that has you know twisted all this stuff around and and, and got our brains thinking in a way that doesn't really think anymore, if you will.
4: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of the, um, one of the, the, the ideas also that I've come across in, in recent times is, is there's a theory out there that the, the Sphinx was in fact uh, a dog, Anubis, And I know that there's a lot of, information to validate that it is, in fact, a lion and, and, and Leo, connected with Leo. But let's just suppose that the, the theory is correct a minute. We can always uh, rewind and edit it out. But um, if, if it is Anubis, is, is there a um, like a, a zodiacal symbol for Anubis anywhere in the, for example, in the ceiling of Dendera or... Uh,
2: any, any, anywhere
4: else you, along your travels? Have you seen like a, a star sign for Anubis or a dog?
2: Well, interesting question. So you're, you're hovering. I think you, have, you know more than you know you know.
4: <laughs> okay.
2: So there, the ceiling of the temple in there is vast, and, and I've photographed it um, professionally because it's 40 feet high as well. So it's mm-hmm. about cycles of time, and it's got the full zodiac on it, Okay but then it's got a whole bunch of things that are counters and so there's nothing on anubis in the zodiac there isn't but he was the one okay when 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 you passed he'd say you're dead check it out you say well i feel the same no look your body's over there now this is the part of you the ba that doesn't die yes but you see uh Archetypal energies with four Anubis figures on leashes. Mm-hmm. And you see over and over again the cross quarter points of the golden, silver, bronze, and iron age. And mm-hmm. these lo- lots of winged creatures with four heads. And they're, they're looking at all these different ages. So this is a, pers- a, a linear processional calendar yes. that's also including the round zodiac, which is yes. the real one is in, in the Louvre. Um yes. is known by Svetlana Pavlova as the calendar of catastrophes, which is pinpointing when the last disaster happened that caused the flood. Um and, and interrupt because they used to have three hundred and sixty days a year and then it ended up three hundred sixty five because the axis of the earth was knocked off center. Yes. And right. so they just added five days at a time instead of redoing the calendar. But all this is hugely significant in terms of marking the precise point that all this happened. Indeed. So I would say from the, the standpoint of the ceiling of the Temple of Dendera, the Anubis markers are more processional markers than astronomical or astrological.
4: Exactly. And I, I think that the, the, uh, the frieze of the Temple of uh, Esna, which clearly does show um, Anubis, I really wonder if that is in fact a, uh, a map. Or a diagram showing the the, the history of the processional um, cycles. and uh, There's a
2: shrine to Anubis at the temple of Queen to sit on the right
4: side facing it. Is that what you mean?
2: Esna? Yeah. Esna, yes. Esna's got all the goddess figures and it was not um, destroyed because it was covered in sand. It took them 50 years to get the sand out and the village is up above. I heard it was a
4: late find, yes.
2: Yes, almost nobody goes there, but one whole wall is goddess figures with the male on their knees. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Just saying, and now nobody gets to go there, huh?
4: <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. Yeah. Well, I have to say that that's hot on the list of things I'd like to see. I don't know how accessible that is anymore, but um, that would be. Well, helpful. now we're talking about.
2: I'm. I'm looking into. There's a, a new sailboat that will go. That's got ten rooms. A fancy sailboat that will go from a Swan. And we can approach the temples, hopefully, um, and book this boat. Um, It's small. I mean, it's not for that many people. But the real island of Philae, um, where the Temple of Isis was before the Aswan Dam, now they've moved it to the island of Angelica. But you can Mm. actually go and sit on the real island of Philae, approach Dendera by boat. I mean, this is becoming quite interesting. I hope we can arrange that for the next one. amazing
1: that would be let's go (laughs) without the
2: vendors and not have all the tour buses and cruise ships Mm -hmm. and all that and then be without a motor on the Nile
4: oh incredible incredible bring that on
2: yes (laughs) I'm working on it it.
4: well I can't believe how this this show has, has rocketed by we're coming up to eight minutes before the end of the show and uh I think I've I've gone through about one page of my notes, so <laughs> I hope that maybe we can uh, meet again and do this again sometime soon. Yeah,
2: we can talk again, sure. Wonderful.
1: Um, well, Timothy, if you're not going to pick up another item from your your page, there, I'm just curious. Uh, a listener did ask about your Jordan site discovery in December.
2: But I mentioned it. I, I came out with it on Coast to Coast in December, but the discovery was made a long time, well, 13 years ago. Oh, or something.
1: oh well, okay.
2: And um, there are 187 different um,
1: claims
2: that the tomb of Alexander the Great was found. Uh, this, this man who found this one um, was an army guy who had access to special technologies for ground-penetrating radar. And he used the same technology as we used for Hawara to discover the the double-layer labyrinth, the ceiling of which one layer is 20 meters, the second one's 40. And there was this big anomaly in a salt mine, which is three stories high. And um, I went to meetings of the principals of the foundation in Paris last year. And and apparently, there's 18 burials on the lower level, one in a gold sarcophagus and 17 in stone. Uh, The speculation is that they're the Ptolemies that were the army generals from Alexander. When Alexander was doing his thing, he was given lots of gifts by the emperor of China and the, you know, the Persian chief Mucks that, you know, were given things because he didn't destroy the country or kill people. And then I think they were relayed back somewhere, which could have been uh, along the uh, Silk Road, but not quite because they wanted to keep it hidden. Uh, So there's incredible treasures. There's, Now, I'm forgetting how much gold, but it's more gold than you've ever heard of. Um, And one third of the contents of the Library of Alexandria that was burned three times, which has been a huge concern of of mine. Like, where's the stuff? Because I always envisioned every time there was a fire that somebody was hauling the papyrus scrolls out of there. So Mm -hmm. where'd they all end up? And apparently they were um, transcribed onto leather, and it's not papyrus scri- uh, scrolls anymore. They're leather, and they're in there. Um,
1: so these are replicas of replicas of scrolls that were in the library. They well, I don't know if
2: replicas are original, but the mm-hmm. discoverer told me they're not papyrus. They're leather. Hmm. But mm. I, I think they would have been preserved, but even though papyrus is almost indestructible.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's the word. And um, when I went to this meeting, he had this sealed case, and he gave me a set of those gloves, and I actually held the dagger of Alex, ostensibly the dagger of Alexander. But what's holding up this find is the the king of Jordan, the Nod, and there's a lot of political stuff going on. So how many of these finds have gotten shut down? Um, because they're afraid that, you know, things will get stolen. Look what's happening with King Tut all these years later. It's almost 100 years to the day, and it's the next intact tomb after King Tut, which is also highly significant. Tut was November 1922, so we're coming up to exactly 100 years later. But these are treasures for the world, and uh, it's being held up. So basically the whole thing went radio silent. I spoke to them couple of months ago well right before i went on coast to coast and they gave me their blessing to make an announcement uh, but that doesn't mean that we're actually going in there and there's a lot to consider in terms of going in there and cataloging they had invited manager um i'm not sure where that stands now because it's just time goes by So uh, Mm -hmm. they want to say that the tomb of Alexander is in Egypt. In the last couple of months, they made another announcement that they found, you know, a skeleton in a tomb with a couple of artifacts, and that must be Alexander. But this is vast, and it stands to reason for all the places that he conquered that there would have been a lot of treasures that were given to him, and he would have had a lot of power in the whole area. Mm -hmm. So um, it stands, and this is a huge huge tomb it used it's an abandoned salt mine which has added to the preservation of things but now i'm forgetting 350 tons of gold is that right i'm, I'm, I'm missing oh my the goodness but we're talking we're talking ah. tons. astronomical <laughs> like more gold than you've ever heard of in bars you know i've seen the photographs. Life size life size statues, but a lot of matriarchal stuff, just like that turkey find.
1: Right, right. All
2: this girl stuff. Not not arrows and I mean there was his dagger, but um in Turkey there was nothing that indicated warfare, or patriarchal, anything. It was all feminine Artemis and various goddesses. It's amazing, really. And then
1: yeah. yes. We're coming up on the end of the show, and I just want to give you an opportunity to, like, highlight anything you really would like our audience to know before, because we've got, like, a minute. So what would you like our audience to know?
2: Okay. Well, well it's dangerous the way they tell you it is, and after 34 trips, I'm sure of it. Um, I mean, it can be a little annoying with uh, vendors always trying to sell you things, which is why I like the sounds of the sailing trip, that they won't be around. Um, and I will be speaking at CPAC uh, October 4th, 5th, and 6th uh, Newport Beach, California This is Walter Cretenden's conference And um, and I'll CP- put the link on the page It's cpaconline.com CPAC Online Conference on Procession and Beach Knowledge
1: This is Don't the other coming. side of midnight Thank you We look forward to you joining us again. Our guest is Dr. Dr. Carmen. Thank you. Mm
8: in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs 19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives, if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our club nineteen point five members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to to Club 19.5 as well because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out.
9: David Kevin Lindsay from Canada, and I would urge everybody to be able to support the other side of the news. With the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there, everybody needs an alternative source of accurate, truthful information. And the other side of the news provides that information, that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved in and that they go to, to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world. I would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news.